The reason why I ended up coming into AA, the majority is because I was in so much pain, but I will tell you a story. This is a very challenging story for me to, to say because it involves with my son. He was three years old when I got sober and I had been trying for all three years. Once I had my kid, I knew I needed to stop drinking. I knew I needed to get it under control. I knew I loved him so much that I was going to harm him if I didn't drastically change the way I lived my life. But I was not yet willing to come to AA. And so there was a day that I went and I dropped Christian off with my father to watch him. My dad had gotten sober and I had seen my dad get sober. So he was able to be trustworthy enough to take care of my kids so that I could go get drunk. And I dropped him off with my dad. I had a couple glasses of wine beforehand. And then I was driving to Fort Worth to meet some acquaintances because by this point, I had no real friends. I was just hanging out with some girls that I worked with. And on my way there, uh, thought burst into my mind so clear, like as if somebody was sitting in the car with me. And the thought was, if you don't stop what you're doing, something really bad is about to happen. It was the about to happen that caught my attention. Like any minute, something horrible is going to happen. And I knew that it had to deal with my son because one week prior, I had taken Christian to a babysitter's house. I had dropped him off. It was going to be the first time he'd ever stayed the night away from me. And I went out to go meet up with my brother and the same acquaintances at a bar. And at 11 o'clock at night, I blacked out. And at four o'clock in the morning, I came to, and my son was sleeping next to me in the bed, safe and sound. And I had no idea why I left. I don't know why I went to pick him up. I don't know what I told the babysitter. I don't know how I drove him home. I don't know how I walked up the stairs to our apartment. Like any of those moments, he could have died. I could have been pulled over and the thing that I love the most could have been taken from me. I was so full of fear in that moment that I told myself, I will never drink again. That's it. I am not going to drink ever again. And here it is one week later. And I am driving to the bar as if nothing had happened. And in the big book where it talks about how like people will sometimes give excuses as to why they picked up again, but mostly we don't know why we're doing it. That baffled thing comes in and that's what happened to me. And so when that thought popped into my mind, I knew the gig is up. My time has run out and I am going to lose my child or I'm going to kill my, ch my, my, my child if I don't stop. And so that's when I was like, okay, God, I'm willing. Who do I tell? Who do I tell? Who can I tell? Yeah, who'd you tell? A guy named Bobby, his name kept coming in my mind. Now, Bobby and I sang on the praise team at my church together. Let's go. And I, he was an acquaintance. Yeah. I didn't hardly know Bobby. And I thought, well, no, I'm not telling Bobby. Bobby's going to go out and tell everybody at the church I'm going to be humiliated. And so I wrestled with God for 24 hours as I slowly drank that entire day. And finally, the fear of hanging on to the bottle was greater than the fear of letting it go and telling somebody my secret. Nobody in my family knew that I had a problem. My mask that everything was okay and I was a good girl was so thick and I isolated and hid my disease so well that nobody knew. They knew that I drank, they knew that I liked to party, but they didn't know to the extent and what I was really going through. And so I thought, who am I gonna tell the secret to? Bobby, Bobby, okay, fine. So I call Bobby on the phone. And I said, look, I feel like I'm supposed to tell somebody and I feel like it's supposed to be you. And he said, okay. And it took me about 10 minutes of sobbing on the phone. And finally I said, I think I have a drinking problem. And he said, oh girl, 
don't worry. You called the right person. I've been in recovery for years. Did you know that? You didn't? No, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. And he said, <laughs> he said, the first time I met your dad wasn't at church. The first time I met your dad was at AA. And in that moment, I'm like, wow, I'm really hearing something. I know. Like, <laughs> I've got like a clear connection. And so he said, you have to get to a meeting as soon as possible. Yeah. I said, I've been drinking for two days. I will go tomorrow. I hung up the phone that night. I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning. I picked up the phone and I called my father. And my father came over. I said, I have been drinking nonstop. I don't know what to do. I've hit bottom. I can't take care of Christian. I'm too hungover and I really need some help. And my dad came to my rescue and he picked me up and without any lectures or judgment or, you know, advice, he said, I'm going to go take you to Language of the Heart, which is my home group in Colleyville. And he said, there's a, a list of women's names that I can get in their numbers. And he drove me there and he said, I will watch Christian and I will take care of him. And we got to, to the meeting and it had just started. I thought we were just going to go to get the list of names. And he was like, the meeting just started, get inside the meeting. And I'm like, dad, no, look at me. I've been crying. I have no makeup on. I haven't showered for two days. Like, no. And he said, Marina, get your ass inside that meeting right now. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I guess I was, I was willing to do things that I had never been willing to do. So I, I stumbled into my first meeting in that moment. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast, Episode 55. The purpose of this show is to allow you free access to alcohol and drug addiction recovery success stories. Listening to these stories will make your sober experience easier and more serene. My name is Michael and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. I started this show to highlight the dramatic and inspiring stories that have been circulating in recovery meetings for decades and I want to bring those messages of hope directly to you. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. Please remember that Sober Shares is not an official Alcoholics Anonymous podcast. This program is solely supported by listeners like you. Please consider making a donation so I can continue to make quality episodes for you. You can support us by visiting our website, SoberShares.com, and clicking on the Donate button. There is also a clickable donation link in the show notes for this episode that you are listening to right now. If you need extra help figuring it out, please email me at mike at SoberShares.com and I will help you. And now it's time to meet our guest. I'm going to turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they wish. Hi, I'm Marina and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is October 5th of 2010. Okay, fantastic. How long is that? How many years is that? I am at 12 years. That's a long time. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about the early years of your life? What did your family look like and where you were born? So, you know, what's interesting about the early years of my life, when I first came into the program and I would listen to other people share about their childhood, I remember the memories that came to my mind were playing in the front yard with my, my younger brother and my older sister. There were three of us, I, all about a year and a half apart, less than two. And we would go out in the front yard and play for hours with the neighborhood friends. And I remember my mother rocking me in the rocking chair. And, and I remember leaning on her chest and feeling very safe. I remember um, times when our family would go and watch the sunset together. I grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona. I was born in Tucson. And we moved to Scottsdale when I was young. I stayed there until I was 12. 
And when I was little, we would go to a hill that that was just so beautiful, and we would watch the sunset, and I would see quail, and I had all these beautiful memories. And as time passed, and I stayed in recovery, and I started working the steps and got to the fourth step and the fifth step, I started also realizing moments in my life when there was a lot of turmoil between my parents, them together, and between us children as well. I remember there were a lot of fights and arguments between my parents and yelling. And I remember my sister would write stop on a real, on a piece of paper and she would hold it up. And then she would write one for each one of us kids. And we would just silently hold up the word stop and hope that my parents would stop fighting and they would shoo us out of the room. And I remember huddling in the living room and a little bit crying and And I remember my brother, you know, getting abused. I remember some animals getting abused. My father was an alcoholic. Uh, He was a workaholic and he had a lot of rage. And, and so there was a lot of turmoil as well. My mother had a very sweet soul, sweet spirit. She was always very, very loving. However, she struggled with some mental, um, mental issues. She was diagnosed as bipolar and manic depressive when I was nine. And so she struggled well with suicidal issues. There were a couple of times when she had to be hospitalized. And so that was really hard. And I remember when I got sober and I would ask myself, well, gosh, I remember the good. And then I remember this awful, like, what was it? And I feel that my child was a combination of the both. One thing that I was taught once I got into recovery and started also seeing a therapist is that when you have these things happen in your childhood and there's emotional abandonment between a parent and a child, that but the physical parent is still there, that the child has this form of insanity that happens because they feel abandoned, but the parent is physically there. So they can't understand why they have this feeling of abandonment. So at a very, very young age, I started turning to look for other things to make me feel good for other ways to make me feel okay. And my story where alcoholism is concerned starts at in my childhood at the age of nine. So that's when I started taking sips of alcohol from my dad's liquor cabinet and trying to just change the way I feel. So my childhood is interesting, and I'm sure many people have it, in that there were beautiful moments, and there were wonderful moments, and then there were some really not-so-great ones. There was some scary stuff that was going on. By the time I was 12, we we moved to El Paso. I had uh, been going to a private Christian school, and so my whole life, all I knew was just a really small, small community and my father was Hispanic and my mother was white. And so I am mixed. My brother looks very, very Hispanic. He has the dark hair, the dark skin, the dark eyes. My sister and I look more of a mix with the colored eyes and, and a, a golden color of skin. So when I was in school, everybody at my private Christian school assumed that we, that I was white, but my brother, he was picked on a lot. We were, he was the only Mexican looking child or maybe one of two or three. And I remember there were times when people would pick on him and he was my younger brother. And I also saw the abuse that he got from my father as the youngest child. And so I was very protective of my brother. He and I were super, super tight, super close. And, um, when we moved to El Paso for my dad's job, all of a sudden I was in a world of, of Latinos and Mexicans. <laughs> <laughs> and I went from being almost embarrassed of my father's culture, 
and wanting to hide from it because people made fun of fun of us. My dad would listen to loud Mexican music when we were kids, and it, I could hear it down the street when I'd be coming <laughs> home, and I'd be like, oh, so embarrassed. And then I moved to El Paso, and it was like, oh. It's a good thing. It's the best. It's a beautiful the, thing. The music Who is knew? cool. The, the mu- ladies are cool. The food is cool. <laughs> the weather, the beaches, the mountains. Exactly. It's amazing. It's wonderful. The clothes. The clo- Everything. The culture is so beautiful. And so I'm very grateful that at the age of 12, I moved to a place where I was able to embrace that side of me and grow in, in that part of who I am and really be able to just enjoy my Mexican blood. I also have lots of family in Mexico still. My dad was one of 17 brothers and sisters wow. from a very from a very small town. It's a pretty Miguel. fertile family. <laughs> I can't even believe that. 17. 17. God. And uh, what? Yes, yes. And so all of Can his, he name all of his brothers and sisters? Have you ever asked him to do it? I don't believe that he could have done it. I that. wouldn't either. No. I'd be like, Dad, I dare you to name your 16 siblings. Well, here's the thing. It wasn't with by the same mother. So, (laughs) yes. So, so he found out later on in life about some of his siblings. He told me one day he was walking down the road in San Miguel. That's where he's from, San Miguel de Allende. Mm -hmm. He was walking down the road as an adult and all of a sudden he saw this man walking by him and they crossed paths and my dad looked at him and said, no, man. That guy looks way too much like me. That's impossible. And he went and, and, and stopped the man and started talking to him and ended up that he was a half-brother yeah, that yeah. he never knew about. Wow. Yeah, yeah. What about your mom's mental illness um, back then, back in the day? Did she ever get on medication for it? She did. Uh, the fr- So her mental illness, I think, first started when she was in college. I found this out later on. Uh, there was a possible suicide attempt. But at that time... They, nobody knew a lot about mental mental health and mental illnesses. And so they did what everybody did, which was sweep it under the rug. And when I was young, I was told one day in the third grade, hey, your mom is really sick. We had to put her in the hospital. My dad was traveling for work. And they told me that her back was, something was wrong with her back. And so my dad had to come back in from in town. And my grandparents, my mother's mom and dad had to come and help out while she was being hospitalized. And when we would go visit my mom, she was not there. She was sitting, she was standing. There was nothing wrong with her back. And so I was, I would be confused. Um, and the people that she was around that were also patients in the hospital were very scary and intimidating to me. They didn't act normal. And it ended up that she was in a psychiatric ward, but they didn't want to tell us kids. So she was there for a long time. For me as a child, it felt like months and months. I don't know for sure how long she was there, but she was there for a while. When she was released, she was put on medication. She had uh, a therapy, one-on-one therapy and group therapy. And it helped greatly for a while. What would happen with my mom is that she would, similar to alcoholism, she would think with a bipolar, oh, I'm not bipolar. Oh, that's not really true. And so sometimes she would decide she didn't want to take her medication anymore. And like with with alcoholics, a lot of times the disease whispers in her ear, you're not really alcoholic. Oh, that's, that's not true. You know, you can you can try again. And so when I got sober... I was able to look at my mother with so much more compassion than I did when I was younger. When I was growing up, I would look at her and I would get so judgmental. 
and be like, why don't you just do what you're told to do? If the doctors say that you need to go to group therapy, why are you suddenly not wanting to go to group therapy? If the doctors say that you need to take this medication, why are you trying to take different medication? And I'm really glad that I was able to um, see her through a different set of eyes in my adult years so that I could have the compassion that she deserved and the respect that she deserved because my mother, the things that she went through in her childhood far surpass anything that I ever went through in mine. And the fact that she was able to continue to get up and fight another fight every day and to look at her own disease and say, not today, every day. And there were a lot of times through the years that depression would come and try to take, take over her again. And she, she worked every day to overcome those demons. And so I'm glad that I was able to get to a point where I could see that truth for my for myself and, and respect her, love her, and honor her the way that she deserved. Do you think that, the reason I ask that question is because there's a lot of people that are going to listen to this that either are A, bipolar themselves, or were raised in a family with a mother or father who had depression or bipolar or manic disorder or manic behavior. And I wanted to just get your thoughts on it what it was like being on the receiving end of that, being a family member to someone who has that condition or being a daughter to someone that has that condition. So you sounds like you've some, come to some type of resolution, positive resolution and viewpoint on your mother and what she went through. Um, it sounds like a lot of that came through therapy, outside therapy and getting sober. So I wanted to ask your opinion on going outside of the 12 steps and going outside of Alcoholics Anonymous to receive therapy, talk therapy, whatever kind of therapy you go through. Um, has that worked for you? And is it, that's been something that's been beneficial for you. Do you believe in that? I, I absolutely believe in that. Yes. Um, I was a year and a half sober or no, maybe two years sober when, uh, a relationship that I was in ended and the relationship that I was in was not healthy. It was a toxic, uh, just very unhealthy relationship. But when it ended, I was in a lot of pain, a lot of emotional pain. And I remember thinking to myself, why? This person was not good to me. I, I did, was not treated well. I did not treat him well. Like it was very clear that we should not be together anymore. Why am I am in so much pain? And I came across a book by Pia Melody about codependency. And I read the book. And the book outlined what it looked like when I was in a relationship so clearly. And at the back of the book, it said, <clears throat> this book can only take you so far. You are going to need to sit down with a, a licensed professional and, and talk about family of origin, shame, inner child, codependency, you know, a, a lot of different areas. And so already having gone through the 12 steps, I knew that I was willing to put in the work. And so I found a therapist and I sat down with her and I said, listen, I read this book. It's called Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody. And it's outlining me and I just ended a relationship and I'm in a lot of pain. And I look at the person and I know I should not be upset that we ended things. I don't understand why I am so upset and I don't have money to waste <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have time to waste. So let's go. So let's go. How long do I need to see you in order to heal? Because this book says I need to go through these areas. Six weeks. She said, give me 10 sessions. Okay. And I saw her for three and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nice. Yes. So what I found out through that. Yeah, what did you find out? That the pain that I was going through was the abandonment that I had originally felt when I was nine years old and I found out that my mother was suicidal and I thought it was my fault and I thought that I had done something wrong and I felt that abandonment from her. I had covered it all those years with trying to pretend to be somebody that I wasn't, trying to get people to accept me, trying to be loved, drinking alcohol to change the way I feel, drugging to change the way I feel, having relationships to make up for that wound right there. When my relationship in sobriety, my first relationship in sobriety ended, I felt all of the feelings that I had covered and masked from the moment that I was nine years old. And that was the original pain that was there. And my therapist allowed that to come out. And then there was a lot of work that needed to be done around it. And that stuff, I think that the the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is the starting point. I cannot get the other areas of my life healed if I'm not able to be sober. And once I was able to finish the 12 steps and continue to work them day to day in my life, then I can start looking at the other areas. And there was a lot of other areas for me. And so I'm a huge advocate for therapy and counseling and doing the other work. Another thing that I found out, which I wasn't too happy about, is that addiction is a symptom of codependency. So not every codependent is an addict, but every addict is a codependent. And I was so upset because I was like, first, I'm already an alcoholic. Like there, that's already, I'm already bummed out or that negative stigma. And now I'm the needy chick, you know what I mean? (laughs) And I found out that codependency isn't just about being the needy chick. It can also be the love avoidant, which is what I tend to fall into is the avoidant, the love avoider. And so there's a whole thing of codependency that I didn't even know about that I had to learn and, and heal from. I want to talk to you about your thoughts on spirituality as a young person. What kind of exposure were you getting to church, religion, spirituality, magic? I don't know. What were your parents and your friends telling you and your schools telling you about spirituality and religion as a kid? My mother gave me one of the greatest gifts of my life, if not the greatest gift of my life. She taught me about what it is to have a relationship with God. Not about religion, although she did have her own religion, and I grew up in a, a Christian faith family. My my father never really participated. He was Catholic, but he never went to church with us or anything like that. My mother always brought me and the kids to church every Sunday, Wednesday night. But she taught us, I remember at night before going to bed, she would talk about prayer and about listening to God's response. And I'm so grateful for that because at a very young age, I was not just saying these, you know, memorized prayers, which I I'm a, I'm a huge fan of memorized prayers, especially when, when, you know, things are crazy. All of a sudden there's the serenity prayer and I just needed it in that moment. But just to, how to have a real conversation and how to quiet myself to be able to listen for a response. And because of my mother's um, struggles, she placed us in really unhealthy churches. And so I saw some really scary and inappropriate things at a very young age, which turned me off to church. I also went through an experience where I had scoliosis when I was the age of 12. 
I was diagnosed. And within six months, it went from a 20-degree curve to a 60-degree curve. And surgery was needed immediately. I had to leave the sixth grade a little bit early and I had to have surgery and I had to be um, bedridden for a few months and learn how to stand and sit and walk and all of that all over again. And when I first was diagnosed, I remembered all of the churches that I had gone to and I remembered all of the TV shows that my mom would have on in the background when we were at the house about, you know, people being miraculously healed, having their hands laid on them and they fall down and shake and all of a sudden the person that couldn't walk could walk. And I thought to myself, well, I'm a good kid. I, I have a relationship with God and I'm going to be miraculously healed. There's no reason why I wouldn't have to go through this. And I think that that was probably the way that I, my mind was able to cope with something so big and serious in my life at that time was just to kind of say, okay, well, I'm not going to have to do that because God's going to rescue me. And I held on to that until I was being wheeled back into the surgery center and into the surgery room. And I will never forget the look on the nurse's face. She was standing over me right as, right before they put me under. And I looked at her and I imagine myself now as that 12-year-old girl. And I looked up with her with so much fear. And I said, I'm really going to have to have the surgery now. And she said, it's going to be okay. I remember her eyes. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And my heart shattered. And I, I broke down and I cried and I cried and I cried. I was so afraid of what was going to happen. And I was so hurt because God didn't give me my miracle. And I really thought he did, he was going to. I thought, I, I, I'm a good kid. I, there's no reason why I shouldn't have gotten my, those other people got one. Why didn't I? And in that moment, my relationship with my higher power changed. I was a little bit more distant, cold. I didn't really believe that God would do for me what was in my best interest. I always believed in God after that, but I didn't actively try to do what he would have me do. It was more like I would pray and want God to come with me my way. Hey, I would like this to happen, this to happen, this to happen, and so please help this all to happen. Come with me my way. So fast forward to after I was, I was fine. I, I got healed. Doctors heal. I, there's no, no, no problem. And I went to El Paso. I started going to school there. I got kind of caught up in, in the disease. Living in El Paso, it's the number one drug trafficking city in the United States. So at the age of 13 in the seventh grade, I'm seeing, you know, people with cocaine in my classroom and we're getting high with weed and I'm walking over the border and walking into the bar. And so by the time I was 15, my disease was already well on its way. And I remember I had a dream, a very clear, vivid dream. And in that dream, I woke up and I knew I was never supposed to drink ever, ever. And I remember thinking, man, I feel like God might have given me that dream. I knew I'm drinking again. I don't care. And when I would be so hungover in my 20s and all that pain and the guilt and the shame and the, oh, you know, days and days in a row of drinking and then I, my hangovers were so horrible. And I remember I would pray, God, I know I have tied your hands. But please just sit with me in this moment. Please just help me. And I very clearly remember this thought would come up in my mind of, you can never drink an AA. AA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And I remember my response was always, never, you know, like even in the midst of my, my greatest pain, I had such an opposing feeling of, I don't want it to be your way. You don't know what's best for me. Come with me my way. I, I want to do it a different way. And so my relationship with God has always been there. It's just drastically changed because now it is, what can I do to align my will with your will, God? How can I go and change from my way? How can I go your way? What is your way? Show me. I am willing. And when I was finally in enough pain to come into the rooms... (laughs) and just surrender and be like, fine, God, I guess I'll try at the age of 31. And to see how beautiful my life has turned out and how amazing this this way of living and recovery is, I was able to know, oh, so God really does know what's best for me. He actually knows what's, what is going to give me the most joy in life, far more than I know. And I remember they would talk a lot about in the meetings about don't leave before the miracle happens. Don't leave before the miracle happens. And after I was sober for a little while, I thought about that miracle again. And I thought about when I was 12, when I didn't get the miracle that I wanted. And then I thought about now, when I've gotten the most beautiful miracle of my life. And I'm so grateful that God actually did give me my miracle. You know, he actually showed up. I was healed and I was fine and the doctors took care of me. I was dying from this disease, dying. And I firmly believe that if it weren't for AA, I would be dead or in jail. And my son, I wouldn't have my son. I firmly believe that. And God rescued me. He rescued me. And so I actually got the most beautiful miracle. I'm very grateful. Yeah, totally recalibrates our perspective on what's going on. I remember at some point in my sobriety, I figured out that God knows what's best for me. I don't. I really probably should get out of the labeling business. I used to be in the labeling business. That's going to be good for me. That's going to be bad for me. I want that. I don't want this. And I, in hindsight, looked back over my life and I was like, Mike, you don't know what you're talking about, dude. Just relax. Take it easy. Trust God one day at a time and just let him take you where he's going to take you. Because apparently he loves you mm-hmm. and apparently he's done right by you. And apparently you weren't in agreement with getting sober or going to AA, or getting married, or having a kid. You didn't want any of those things. And now that you have all those things, those are the top four best things that have ever happened to you. So maybe you don't know what you're talking about, Mike. Maybe you should just calm down and just let God lead you on a daily basis. And that's that's what I did. That's exactly right. When did you first become aware of alcohol, and what were your initial thoughts about it? When I got sober and I was sitting in meetings and I would hear other people talk about when alcohol became an important role in their lives. It caused me to look back at my life and say, when and how did this happen? And I have uh, two memories from the time that I was two years old. I remember getting my first cat, Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had her for 19 years. Wow. It was a very important moment in my life. I love that cat. <laughs> do, you have, oh, do you have a cat now? No. That, w- that cat was one and done for me. <laughs> you, don't want, you don't want another one as an adult? No. <laughs> Okay. No, my mother always had cats, and so I've I've had my fill of cats. She she ha- had five cats when she passed, and now my stepfather is taking God. care of her five cats. What? Yeah, God bless him. Yeah. Um, so the other memory that I had at the age of two was the first time I took a sip of alcohol. It was an accident. As I said, I grew up in Scottsdale, so it was very hot, and it was a summer day. My dad was doing yard work, and there was a glass of orange juice 
placed outside and I was playing out in the front yard and watching him do the yard work and I looked over and I thought it was orange juice and I remember so clearly what the glass looks like I remember the the condensation dripping from the glass I picked it up and I took a swallow and it had vodka in it I don't remember it changing the way I felt. I remember the burn down my throat, but the way that I have such a clear memory, it is as if it was yesterday. I can remember it so vividly. And I had to ask myself, why out of all the memories, all the things that happened to me at the age of two, why would I only remember those two things and taking my first sip of alcohol? That is very telling to me. And then, as I said earlier, I started drinking at the age of nine. Um, I had friends, you know, I always attracted the, the fun, <laughs> the yeah. fun friends. And so I was taking little sips of my dad's liquor with them. Age 12, I was having a friend's older sister get us beer. Age 13, I was walking over the border and into the bar. And so my desire to drink was started at a very young age. I always saw alcohol and drinking as this glamorous beautiful, like amazing thing. When I saw we would go to to Mexico to visit my family and they would have these amazing parties and everybody would be drinking and dancing. And my tios would always be like, here, mija. And they'd give me a little sip of their cerveza, you know, and I thought, oh, I'm so cool. You know, I get to. And so I always um, linked beauty, glamour, success, allure with drinking well, it was that for a while. It was. I had a good time out there. I had so much fun drinking in the early days, sometimes even in the later days, but it turned on me later. But yeah, I had a lot of fun at the beginning. I don't ever want to get on this podcast and trash alcohol and be like, it was a disaster from the beginning. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was not. It was not a disaster from the beginning. It set me free and it was so much fun. And I just had, I just rode that train as far as I could ride that train. Absolutely. And then it blew up on me. Were you a little bit of a hood rat? Did you smoke cigarettes? Were you a bad girl? Did you smoke cigarettes? Okay. So as far as a bad girl goes, yes, absolutely. But my outside mm-hmm. came across as the very good child. All parents loved me. All teachers loved me. I knew how to be the master manipulator. I was the chameleon. And so although I was smoking cigarettes and, you know, always had a crush on somebody and drinking and gossiping and doing all these things, if I was around my church people, they would have no idea. If I was at my school, the teachers would be like, Marina, will you please come up and read your essay? Because it was the, you know, it got an A and I want you to, I want the other kids to see what an essay is supposed to look like. And so I'd get up there and I'd read and my boyfriend's parents all really liked me. And, and so I came across as a good girl, but on the inside, the real me was like, how can we party? How can we party hard? I stayed up with the best of them and was usually one of the last ones standing. Do you still smoke cigarettes? Oh, no. Good. Oh, no. You know what's interesting about that? When I stopped drinking, I never picked up another cigarette again. It is so correlated with alcohol for me Mm. that I fear that if I were to smoke a cigarette again, that it would start me down a, a path I, I, to the to destruction and vaping. Like I've always been. I, <laughs> You're the I, first person to talk about vaping on this podcast. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> what are you going to say? Okay. So vaping looks, I mean, it smells good. They've got all these flavors. I'm like, what is this vaping? And so I've been a little curious. I'm like, no, no, I, I stay away from all things uh, that 
could cause me to get addicted to it. And I just try. It does smell good. I smelled something the other day. I was like, what is that? that smells delicious. And right? I turned on, there was this guy vaping behind me. I was like, is that your vape smoke? And he's like, yeah. I go, what is it? He goes, cotton candy. <laughs> I was like, cotton candy, vape smoke. Exactly. But then I started thinking about it. I was like, yeah, that was just in his lungs. And now I'm smelling it and say it smells good. That's kind of gross. <laughs> um, so at the end of my drink, and I hung out with a bunch of alcoholics. And um, a lot of them were my friends. And some of them were degenerates. Most of them were degenerates. And so I would say to my friends, I'd be like, because I, I am a non-smoker of cigarettes. I did not smoke. I always thought it was gross, in my personal opinion. And so a lot of my friends smoked. And so at the last couple of years of my drinking, I would look at my friends and I'd be like, they like consider themselves non-smokers. Like my friends considered themselves non-smokers. I was like, I was like, bro, you, what do you mean you're not, not you, what do you mean you don't smoke? You're, you're non-smoker. I was like, and then he'd be like, or two or three of these dudes were like, I only smoke when I drink. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, you, I, I don't only smoke when I drink. I don't, you know? And I was like, bro, you drink every day. Like, have you considered the fact that you drink every day? So you smoke every day? So yeah, bro, you are a smoker. You're telling my story. That's exactly what I thought. That's what they told me. And they believed it. I feel like yes. if I hooked a lie detector up to them, they'd be like, I'm a non-smoker. <laughs> I just I just smoke when I drink. Um, and then I'm like, hey, dumbass, you, you, you drink every day. And by the way, I see you in gas stations all the time buying cigarettes. So how can you say you're not a smoker? And they'd be like, oh, I give a lot of them away. I, I, people bum them off of me. Yes, I, 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 you're telling my story. I never believed myself as a, uh, never thought of myself as a smoker. I only smoked when I drank. And if I wasn't drinking, I would definitely was never smoking. I didn't like to smoke during the day. And so I, but if you look at how many days a week are you drinking, I'm drinking basically every day. So I'm smoking every day, but still considering myself a non-smoker. And I would have passed that lie detector test. So I want to tell a quick story I've never told anybody on this planet. Okay, so when you go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and you're in a discussion meeting, you generally have about one to three minutes to share per person. And occasionally, the chairperson who is running the meeting will cut somebody off and stop them from talking. Okay, so that happened to me one time ever, and this is what happened. I was at Clean Air North, which is a non-smoking group in Addison, Texas. I don't remember what the topic was. I don't remember what we were talking about. But it came to me and I started talking. At some point during my three-minute share, probably about the two-minute mark, I turned my attention to cigarettes and smoking it. And I started talking about how disgusting it was and how gross it was and how nasty it was. And the chairperson, like, straight up interrupted me, stopped me, cut me off, and said, that's enough. Those are outside issues. We're going to move on. And there was like 40 people in this meeting, and that had never happened to me. And I did not think that that was going to happen to me that day. Yeah. Because I was just speaking truth, in in my opinion, my truth, I was speaking my truth, but she shut me down there. She's like, okay, well, thanks a lot. That's enough out of you. Uh, Outside issues, we're moving on. And I was like... I was like, well, I guess she didn't like me talking about that. I don't like cigarettes. Whatever. Right. Yeah. So I, I probably should have kept that to myself. But. There's a lot of controversy when it comes to smoking cigarettes in, in the rooms of recovery because so many people do. And I remember I kind of got sucked into that debate at one point and I had to withdraw myself and just decide, look, it's not my battle. Because some people are like, well, they're not really sober. If I, well, then what about coffee? You know, it's only you're drinking coffee. Everybody has to drink coffee, you know. So it's just a, a slippery slope where singleness of purpose I can understand when it comes to just the disease of what is killing us right now, right here of alcoholism. Um, and so I, I choose to be grateful that I am not addicted to 
any type of tobacco product and hope that everybody else can get to the point where they're not as well. Yeah. I'm a little bit more open minded now. Um, I stay in my lane now Mm -hmm. and I let everybody do what they want to do and carry on and uh, maybe just don't smoke it in my car or, or blow up my face and we'll be good. There's a lot of meetings that have smoking allowed and there's a lot of meetings that don't. So if you're out there and you're sober curious and you're listening to this podcast and you think, I'm thinking about going, but I don't like cigarettes. I'm allergic to smoke. I'm not going to AA because they all smoke. Well, that's not true. There's a lot. So actually, I'd say in Dallas, the vast majority meetings, I'd say like now it's probably like 95% of the meetings that are held in Dallas, Texas on a daily basis are non-smoking. We do have smoking meetings. You can find them. But I think they're only about 5% of what's going on. And, yes. and that has changed drastically in the last 50 years. 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was the opposite. It was smoking was allowed in 90% of the meetings and not smoking in 10. So I don't know why we just went off on cigarettes for a few minutes, but that's where we are. It was meant to happen, I guess. And there you go. Let's talk about how drinking made you feel. You were talking about crossing the border when you were 13 and dipping into the bars in Mexico and sneaking all these drinks. What did it do for you? How did it make you feel on the inside? How did it change you as a person? I was always uncomfortable in my own skin. And if I was in a group of people, I was always trying to fit in. I always felt less than, and I had a a deep-seated root of shame. And so when I drank, all of that went away. I didn't know that was what was going on. Me too. But yes. (laughs) Exactly. I never even knew you when you were a kid. (laughs) But I was in the exact same lane as you were. And that alcohol for me, I'm assuming it did for you what it did for me. It just muted all those feelings and put that to sleep. And then it kind of awoke my superpowers. Yes. It awoke my superpowers. Everything that I felt, it was like opposite world. I felt confident. I felt beautiful. I felt like, why wouldn't everybody accept me? I'm amazing. I would, you know, 15 minutes after I drank my first drink, I was like, dude. You're not dumb. You might be a genius. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you're not, you're not goofy and ugly. Those chicks would be lucky yes. to get a chance to talk to you. And to be quite frank with you, I don't understand why you're not dating the head cheerleader, you know, but I was, why a, not? I was a little boy and I just, it just, it just changed everything for me. Yes. And that was not lost upon me. I noticed it. I held on to that and I really wanted to lean into that again and again and again. Yes, it, it made me feel so comfortable when in my life I was so uncomfortable. And I was a very loving, friendly drunk. And so I always just had all my friends and we were just having fun and, you know, doing all the things. And occasionally in a blackout, it might turn and all of a sudden I'd be a completely different person. And I heard the other day, Somebody talk about how alcohol can be like a truth serum and that, oh, well, you know, when they're drinking, the real them comes out. I actually don't believe that at all. I don't agree with that at all. Some of the things that I have done when drunk are things that I would never do sober. Never. Nothing inside of me would be that person. And lots of times it was when I was in a blackout. And so this belief that Oh, the real you comes out when you're drinking and you're just a horrible person. I don't, I don't agree with that statement. I feel that alcoholism causes us to be people that we are not, even if it is the false, beautiful, lovely, laughing, kind person. The real sober me was a a shy, introverted, uncomfortable person. And it wasn't until I healed those wounds that now I can be the real me that I was created to be. And so there's uh, that, that little thing that people talk about with, with alcohol and, and the truth coming out. I think that it's important for us to highlight that that's not necessarily accurate. 
Yeah. I did some crazy stuff when I was drunk that I would have never done uh, otherwise. And that was not the real me. That was inebriated me Mm -hmm. with my inhibitions lowered so far. I would just do wild stuff, wild behavior. Um, So let's talk about blackouts a little bit. Um, Talk to me about your history of blackouts and how that affected you. And and my my main question in conjunction that is, were you fearful of them? Did it ever scare you that they were arriving on the scene? And and what measures did you take to try to combat the potential dangerous situations you might get involved in with blackouts? I uh, I did get a lot of blackouts. I don't know when they started. I don't recall blackouts <laughs> in high school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they might have been there. I just don't remember, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, Blackout. But I do know that towards like senior year and in my college years, uh, all the way up until I came into the program, blackouts became more and more frequent, actually. They terrified me. Good. You're the first person to say that. They, I was, I, I did not like them at all. I would wake up. And Nobody, I, everybody else didn't care. Everybody else on this really? podcast, for real, dude. All these people, you're the first person to admit it. <laughs> everybody else on this podcast would be like, whatever. They didn't concern me. They didn't make me nervous. And I'm like, how are you rolling around as a beautiful person, a beautiful girl, and having blackouts and knowing you're having blackouts and not being scared of them? And, um, yeah, they, they, it was, it was awful. I would wake up and I would have a whole chunk of the night missing and I would remember like 11 o'clock and then all of a sudden fast forward to four o'clock in the morning and I would have to ask myself, what did I do? What did I say? Who was around? Did something happen? Did something happen to me? And I would feel so much shame and people would like the next day to be like, oh my gosh, last night was so crazy. And I would pretend that I didn't have a blackout. Oh yeah, I know. And they'd be like, do you remember what you did? Of course I remember what I did. Come on. You know me, I'm just being silly. And in reality, I'm like, oh my gosh, let's change the subject as quickly as possible so that I don't have to think about this anymore. Because to me, if I couldn't remember it, then maybe it just didn't happen. And if enough time went by and I didn't think about it, then it would just go away. However, those things caused me to wake up in the middle of the night sometimes or just be walking on the side of the street and I would remember and be like, oh, what did I do? What I, and I, this, this fear, this shame, this remorse. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And sometimes the things that I did remember. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. All those things. It caused me, it never went away. The feeling and the result of those never went away. The reason why I ended up coming into AA, the majority is because I was in so much pain, but I will tell you a story. This is a very challenging story for me to, to say because it involves with my son. He was three years old when I got sober and I had been trying for all three years. Once I had my kid, I knew I needed to stop drinking. I knew I needed to get it under control. I knew I loved him so much that I was going to harm him if I didn't drastically change the way I lived my life. But I was not yet willing to come to AA. And so there was a day that I went and I dropped Christian off with my father to watch him. My dad had gotten sober and I had seen my dad get sober. So he was able to be trustworthy enough to take care of my kids so that I could go get drunk. And I dropped him off with my dad. I had a couple glasses of wine beforehand. And then I was driving to Fort Worth to meet some acquaintances because by this point, I had no real friends. I was just hanging out with some girls that I worked with. And on my way there, a thought burst into my mind so clear, like as if somebody was sitting in the car with me. And the thought was, if you don't stop what you're doing, something really bad is about to happen. It was the 
about to happen that caught my attention. Like any minute, something horrible is going to happen. And I knew that it had to deal with my son because one week prior, I had taken Christian to a babysitter's house. I had dropped him off. It was going to be the first time he'd ever stayed the night away from me. And I went out to go meet up with my brother and the same acquaintances at a bar. And at 11 o'clock at night, I blacked out. And at four o'clock in the morning, I came to and my son was sleeping next to me in the bed, safe and sound. And I had no idea why I left. I don't know why I went to pick him up. I don't know what I told the babysitter. I don't know how I drove him home. I don't know how I walked up the stairs to our apartment. Like any of those moments, he could have died. I could have been pulled over. And the thing that I love the most could have been taken from me. I was so full of fear in that moment that I told myself, I will never drink again. That's it. I am not going to drink ever again. And here it is one week later. And I am driving to the bar as if nothing had happened. And in the big book where it talks about how like people will sometimes give excuses as to why they picked up again, but mostly we don't know why we're doing it. That baffled thing comes in and that's what happened to me. And so when that thought popped into my mind, I knew the gig is up. My time has run out and I am going to lose my child or I'm going to kill my, ch- my, my, my child if I don't stop. And so that's when I was like, okay, God, I'm willing. Who do I tell? Who do I tell? Who can I tell? Yeah, who'd you tell? A guy named Bobby, his name kept coming in my mind. Now, Bobby and I sang on the praise team at my church together. And I, he was an acquaintance. I didn't hardly know Bobby. And I thought, well, no, I'm not telling Bobby. Bobby's going to go out and tell everybody at the church. I'm going to be humiliated. And so I wrestled with God for 24 hours as I slowly drank that entire day. And finally, the fear of hanging on to the bottle was greater than the fear of letting it go and telling somebody my secret. Nobody in my family knew that I had a problem. My mask that everything was okay and I was a good girl was so thick and I isolated and hid my disease so well that nobody knew. They knew that I drank, they knew that I liked to party, but they didn't know to the extent and what I was really going through. And so I thought, who am I gonna tell the secret to? Bobby, Bobby, okay, fine. So I call Bobby on the phone. And I said, look, I feel like I'm supposed to tell somebody and I feel like it's supposed to be you. And he said, okay. And it took me about 10 minutes of sobbing on the phone. And finally I said, I think I have a drinking problem. And he said, oh girl, don't worry. You called the right person. I've been in recovery for years. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. And he said, (laughs) he said, the first time I met your dad wasn't at church. The first time I met your dad was at AA. And in that moment, I'm like, wow, I'm really hearing something. I know. Like, <laughs> I've got like a clear connection. And so he said, you have to get to a meeting as soon as possible. Yeah. I said, I've been drinking for two days. I will go tomorrow. I hung up the phone. That night, I went to sleep. I woke up the next morning. I picked up the phone and I called my father. And my father came over. I said, I have been drinking nonstop. I don't know what to do. I've hit bottom. I can't take care of Christian. I'm too hungover and I really need some help. And my dad came to my rescue and he picked me up and without any 
lectures or judgment or, you know, advice. He said, I'm going to go take you to Language of the Heart, which is my home group in Colleyville. And he said, there's a, a list of women's names that I can get in their numbers. And he drove me there and he said, I will watch Christian and I will take care of him. And we got to, to the meeting and it had just started. I thought we were just going to go to get the list of names. And he was like, the meeting just started. Get inside the meeting. And I'm like, dad, no, look at me. I've been crying. I have no makeup on. I haven't showered for two days. Like, no. And he said, Marina, get your ass inside that meeting right now. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I guess I was, I was willing to do things that I had never been willing to do. So I, I stumbled into my first meeting in that moment. I was 20 minutes late. And I'm sure they just stared at you when you Everybody stared at me. It was the noon meeting, all these beautiful, normal, healthy people. And here's this girl, you know, strung out. My hands were shaking. My eye, my eye, the whites of my eyes were yellow. I just, I was a disaster. And, and I remember they started, I remember who chaired the meeting. I remember the people that were in the meeting. I remember that all of a sudden they started going around the room and I realized they were going to like want me to share too. And I, I ran, I ran. I was like, there's no way because I was so messed up. So I ran out and the, and a couple of girls followed me out and they talked to me and they gave me their number and asked me to come back. Have you been sober since then? I no. I, after about 30 days, mm -hmm. um, I relapsed and my, the cause of my relapse, uh, I had a couple of things that I didn't believe about AA. I didn't believe this talk about the allergy. I thought if you eat a strawberry and you break out in a rash because you're allergic to it, you never want a strawberry again. Mm -hmm. And if you, um, I also didn't believe if that the disease stays where it's at and no matter how long you've been sober, if you start drinking again, you will be exactly where you were when you stopped drinking last time. If you were drinking three days in a row, guess what? You're going to be drinking three days in a row again. I thought, you know, if you don't, if you take a nice solid break, you'll just ease back into it. You know, you'll just drink like a normal person. And so those two things that I didn't quite believe about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous kept me with one foot in and one foot out. And I still missed the drink. I glamorized it. I missed my wine. I missed, you know, all the beliefs that I still kind of held on to. And so after about 30 something days, uh, I had some friends from high school come into town and they were going to go to Six Flags and they wanted me to go with them. These are the people that I grew up with drinking and partying. And Don't they, tell me your last drink was at Six Flags. Was yeah, it, it started at Six Flags. <laughs> <laughs> and I really thought I'm only going to drink a beer this time. I'm okay. only going to drink a beer. It's the first time I'd ever decided I wasn't going to like try to drink drink. Right. I was going to actually try to control it. And no, two days went by. Day number three, I was hung over all over again. And when I was so just lost in all of that, I felt like a robot. I remember we went to get happy hour after Six Flags and then we were supposed to meet up at my friend's house. And instead I went home I isolated myself, like I, which was what I had done at that point. I, I was mostly isolating and drinking. There I was doing that again. There was no fun. There was no glamour. There was no partying. And I'm drinking all different types of wine because all of it tastes terrible. The, the flavor that I had missed so much was like the worst bile taste in my mouth. And instead of saying, well, this doesn't taste good. I'm not going to drink. It was, well, this doesn't taste good. Maybe I need to try that brand. Maybe I need to try that brand. And it was, I just continued to chug and chug and chug. And when I woke up that next day, the truth of step one 
settle deep into my soul. I knew that everything AA said is true. They don't lie. Everything that AA says is me. And that's when the lurking notion was completely smashed. And I knew that this was going to be the best it would ever be. There would always be blackouts. There would always be days on end of isolation. There was always going to be misery. There was always going to be shame and guilt and remorse. And I thought, enough. And I said, I am going to fight this disease like I have never fought before. I'm going to do everything that AA says. And I called up my sponsor. I went and I got uh, another chip. I reestablished. And in that moment that I was willing to fight harder than I'd ever fought before was the exact moment that the war was over. Would you say that that was your moment of clarity or would you say, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Did you ever have any legal consequences due to your drinking or hospitalizations, any DWIs, any arrests, any hospitalizations for accidents that you did to yourself or others? I did not. And that kept me on the better than plane for a while. (laughs) I was already so embarrassed to be an AA. And I would be like, oh, somebody mentioned this high bottom drunk thing. And I'm like, oh, oh, well, I'm a high bottom drunk. I I never had anything like that. And I remember I would share sometimes about how, oh, I never got a DUI. I never got into trouble. I well, the only reason why I never got into trouble is because I just happened to never get caught. Yeah. I should have gotten, many, I should be in jail. I should be dead. I should be all kinds of things. I just never got busted. So although I don't have legal consequences, and although I might be categorized as a high bottom drunk because I never lost my house, I never lost my kid, I never had all these things happen, but my emotional bottom, my spiritual bottom, and my physical body were at an all-time low. And that's really, all of us hit our bottoms. Our circumstances don't matter. What's going on inside of us is what matters when we are at our bottom, when we have had enough and just can't fathom any other way to go except to finally reach out and say, maybe this can help. That is what matters, and all of us are equal in that time. I want to go back to the car. Uh, I want to know what happened in the car after your first AA meeting. Your dad took you to your first AA meeting. You thought you were just going there to get signatures. You show up 20 minutes late. You go, and he's like, get in there, get in there. Your dad made you go in. You go in there. You do the last 40 minutes of the meeting. A couple of chicks chase you out. You'll talk in the parking lot, and then you jump in the car with him. Can you take us to that car ride home? What did he say? He's like, how would it go? I mean, what happened? in that car ride home from your first day, Amy, what did he say? Do you remember? What a beautiful question, because I've never, ever thought about that car ride home. And now that you bring it up, it was such a beautiful moment in my life. And I'm so glad for that to have been brought up because I'm going to hang on to it. I remember, I'm so sorry. I'm going to try to get through this. My dad leaned over and he grabbed my hand and he looked over at me and he said, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to help. This actually works. And he he was at the point where he was almost one year sober. And all I ever saw was that he had gone to meetings. He never talked anything about the meetings. He never he had a sponsor, I knew that, and he would drive to different groups to hear his sponsor speak. I knew that. That's all I knew. But when he looked at me and he had so much love and my dad and I, our relationship growing up, you know, with the anger issues that he had and the abuse that I witnessed, it was so 
there was so much between the two of us that was negative and not good. And as an adult, we had tried to make things better. And, you know, there were times when I had to not speak to him or he would not speak to me. And we had gotten to the point where we were trying to heal. But in that car ride home, when he looked at me, it was like he was, it was like a mirror, I guess. Like I could tell that he really understood what I was going through and I could tell, and, and, and I could tell what he had already gone through and it gave me a lot of hope. And he said that he was going to help me with Christian. And that was so beautiful because I needed, I needed help. And I knew that I could trust him because he was sober. And we started on a journey of recovery together, my father and I. And everybody in the meeting at our home group knew us as father and daughter. And he would save me a seat um, whenever we would go to meetings together. And I would go and I'd sit down and he'd give me a kiss on the cheek. And he was this very short Hispanic man, very thick Hispanic accent and a brilliant mind. He had his doctorate in food science, such a smart, brilliant man. And he would say such beautiful things in the meetings with such eloquence. And one thing that he shared one time, he said, I thought that being able to share recovery with my daughter would be like icing on the cake. And he said, oh man, it's a whole other cake. And it was. We would have meetings after the meetings. We would sometimes have meetings, just the two of us, if we were traveling. We did this deal so close. And then something happened, and my father started to get away from the program. There were some resentments that he couldn't let go of, and he started to struggle with the desire to drink, and he started to relapse. And he never got more than, I think, close to two years and he would try again, though. He would, as soon as he would relapse, he would get right back in the program again. And sometimes, I, re- I remember this one time, I was getting maybe my four-year chip or my five-year chip. And when he saw that I had my annual birthday, he said, oh, that gave me the courage, daughter. I'm going to do it too. I'm going to go. And he went and reestablished that day. And so he was the one that was the hand of AA when I really needed it. And he rescued me. And I was able to turn around and do the same for him when he was struggling. And then last year, um, I had noticed that he was really getting worse in the disease. The amount of time that he was sober was less and less. And he got further and further away from the program. And the things that he was doing were very worrisome and very scary. And I had to put very healthy, clear boundaries around our relationship because of what was happening. And I couldn't have that kind of stuff be around my son. And um, and I was very worried that my dad was going to die. I And... I remember I would have these thoughts in my head of, oh my gosh, he's all by himself. And I wanted to go and rescue him. But my sponsor had to tell me, you need to love him, but you need to love him the best way that you can love him right now, which is allow him to get to his own bottom, allow him to do what he needs to do because you constantly rescuing him is only enabling this behavior. And so I would just pray and pray and pray. And my my sister got married and at the wedding, my father was not sober. And that was unlike him to be able to not even get so stay sober for my sister's wedding that's huge and i knew something something was really bad and so i was driving and there was thought came into my mind i haven't talked to my dad in a little bit 
where I haven't seen him in a little while. And I texted my sister and said, when was the last time you talked to dad? And she said, Tuesday, this was on Thursday. She said, Tuesday was the last time I talked to my dad. And I reached out to my brother and I said, when was the last time you talked to, to my dad? And he said, Saturday. And I'm like, oh, and, all right, it's only been a couple of days. Maybe he's okay. And I called him and it was going straight to voicemail. And I called him and it went straight to voicemail. And I was working late that night and I asked my sister, will you please go and check on dad? I just have a really bad feeling. I don't know what's going on, but I'm worried about him. And she had left town. And so she wasn't here. And so on Friday morning, I had to go to work and I texted my brother and I said, I ha I can go check on him at like two o'clock in the afternoon. I, I don't know. That's the soonest I can get there. I have to be at my job. And my brother reached out to my mother and they were, they had been divorced for many years, but they got along really well. My stepdad and my dad were very good friends. And my brother said, will you please go check on, on my dad? We're worried about him. And my stepdad was like, this seems very, you know, extreme, but if you guys really want us to, then we will. And so they went to go check on my father, and um, unfortunately, he had fallen down the stairs and had broken his neck and had passed away, and he was not sober. And so <clears throat> I got a call at my work at about noon and saying that they had found my dad and that he had fallen. They did not tell me that he had died. I jumped in my car, and I raced over to his apartment complex, and when I got there, my stepfather broke the news to me, and I just remember thinking, like, oh my gosh, my greatest fear my my worst fear about my father has happened he doesn't he doesn't get to have another chance like he's gone and the the realization that i lost my dad and that my dad was not sober when he died was so painful so so excruciatingly painful but the next morning i woke up and i was like what am i supposed to do now what am i supposed to do in this moment i have lost my father i have a son that i have to care for all of my siblings were out of the state. I was by myself and I got on my knees and I prayed and I asked God, please keep me sober. And then I said, what am I supposed to do now? How am I going to get through this? And I went and I sat down at the kitchen table where I do my 11 and my 10 and 11 step. And I did my prayer and meditation and I read my literature. And then I went to a meeting and then I allowed AA women to surround me. And I, I just started doing what I had been taught to do. Because when we do everything the same over and over and over, repetition strengthens and confirms so that then when shit hits the fan and you don't know what to do, all of a sudden you're like on this path of just doing what you've always done and you start getting through it. And I think now about the fact that my dad didn't die sober. And I wonder, I ask myself this question, Maybe did God know that my father was never going to be able to say yes to sobriety again? And so instead of my dad getting in an accident and being paralyzed or getting in an accident and killing somebody else or going to prison, maybe he just said, okay, come home. You've tried and you've tried and you've tried. And I see now that, that you're not able to say yes again. And so I'm going to take you home. And my dad died so suddenly there was no, he broke his neck and that was it. So he doesn't know what happened to him. Only I know, only I relive that moment of what it must've been like when he fell down. But my dad was just instantly gone. And there's peace for me in that because I feel like he no longer has to struggle. He no longer has to be in that shame and that pain that he was living in constantly by that point. 
And although I, I don't believe that my father deserved death, but I do believe that he deserves peace and whatever heaven looks like for us in that next place. I, I believe that he deserves that. And so I'm, I'm glad that he's at peace. Oh, what a beautiful and complicated relationship you had with your dad. It's so beautiful that he was able to help you into the meetings and help you into the rooms. And it just kind of resonates with me what he talked to you about in that car. He told you it was okay. He told you he was going to help you, and he told you that it works. And then you were able to reciprocate that and give the same message back to him when he was struggling. That's beautiful. And I remember sitting in meetings with you years ago, and you would talk about your dad a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about your dad a lot. I didn't feel like I knew the dude. Right. You would tell me, you would check in, be like, this is what's going on with my dad. <laughs> This is what he's doing now. This is what I don't agree with. This is what I do agree with. And then some weeks you'd be like, he's doing good. And then some weeks you'd be like, he's struggling. And yes. I remember you talking about your dad and sobriety. And I just remember, I just remember that. So when you first got to the uh, program in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, what did you think about the fact that the, the word God was on the wall and that it was a spiritually based program? how did you feel about that? When I first came in and I saw the word God, I was comforted and I felt like, okay, I didn't know at all that God was in recovery or in the 12 steps. I knew nothing. I was horrified. I was comforted. I thought, okay, well, maybe this is because I had been trying to get sober by going to church and by doing, you know, Bible studies and by reading the Bible and it was not working. And so when I went into AA and I'm like, what the heck? There's God all over the place. And I thought, okay, yes. But then they had a step two meeting where it said the God of your understanding. And that's where I bristled. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, that's where I come from. That's almost blasphemous. Yeah, I was wondering, right? How do you reconcile your past and your thoughts with what God is and who he is and what he looks like and what he sounds like and what his mood is versus a God of your own understanding. That must be difficult for, for me. It wasn't as difficult because I was coming from a place of nothingness. Yeah. I didn't believe in God. I thought it was silly. I thought it was hokey. So for <laughs> me to be able to, you know, acquiesce and, and give myself up to the program and little by slow figure it out, but I didn't come in with a set of ideas. So how, what was that like transitioning from a set of your own personal ideas to a God of your understanding? When I when that meeting happened, one of my first handful of meetings, uh, I remember thinking, oh, this must not be where I'm supposed to be. And I got sad because I, I was hopeless. Where else am I going to go? This was my last option. And then somebody in that meeting shared something that resonated so clearly with me. He said, God can only disclose himself to each and every one of us in a unique and, and, and individual way. God or a higher power or whatever it is, we cannot see, touch, feel, hear him in this world that we live in. So the way that God discloses himself to me, I can explain and describe to you. However, I cannot force you to have the exact same experience. And so if there is one God as the way that the religion that I was raised in speaks of and believes, then it is between God and each of us individually to reveal that to us. That's me and God, us, you and God, you and your high. Who am I to say that the way that he has revealed himself to me is the way he has to reveal himself to you? Who is playing God in that situation? Me. And so when I heard that man speak and I was able to make sense of it. Yes, 
That makes sense. Yes, I understand that. And I looked around the room and I saw everyone was staying sober and I was not staying sober. So my thinking was wrong in regard to a lot of things. And so I was willing to say, okay, well, I don't know if I understand completely, but I'm okay with not understanding. I am okay with not judging anybody else's belief system. I am okay with concentrating on my relationship with my higher power and how he wants to reveal himself to me. And that was a pivotal point in my relationship with God because it was no longer about what I had been taught, taught and what I had been told I have to believe in order to have these things come up. It was, God, who are you? Reveal yourself to me. I really want to know. And beautiful things happen from there. Yeah, and probably continue to happen. It's probably a process. It just keeps rolling on and on. Never <laughs> ending. Never ending. Beautiful adventure. So I want to take a break and read a few announcements. I want to remind everybody that SoberShares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of the things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments or suggestions. My email address is Mike at SoberShares.com. You can also record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon that I can play back on the next episode and you can hear your own voice on the next episode of Sober Shares. I think that'd be cool. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Your donation will be used to help us offset and cover our monthly operating expenses. I want to mention a few listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward. Thank you, David R. Thank you, Xander C. And thank you, Amy W. I want to assure you that I value your time and attention as a listener. And our sole focus here at Sober Shares Podcast is to help people. And that guides everything that we do here. And now I'd like to read a couple of listener feedbacks. I am grateful that men like Clancy, who struggled for so long and so terribly like I have, eventually got it and shared their experience, strength, and hope. My date of sobriety is December 17th, 2022. I just recently picked up a 30-day chip, and I'm actively working with an excellent sponsor who introduced me to this podcast. Blessings, Cameron M. Okay, so now back to our guest. Can you tell me about your AA sponsor and how did you get one? I've had a few sponsors since I've gotten sober. Uh, the first sponsor that I had uh, took me through the 12 steps and was very thorough. Um, I have, there was a, a breach of trust, I feel, between uh -oh. the two of us. Uh -oh. Yes. <laughs> that, that, What'd she do? Did she tell your story to some other people? Well, her husband is in recovery as well. And there was a couple of times where she would mention, you know, well, my husband thinks this and the other. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you got a co-sponsor situation. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, she was uh, very upset with my decision to date after I was done working the 12 steps. I, I went through the 12 steps quickly. I was done after six months and she had a line, a line in the sand of you wait a year before you start dating. And I, and I understand that. I know that there's a lot of controversy, a lot of talk. What are you supposed to do? When is it okay to date? And, yeah. you know, I saw this guy on like my second or third meeting and I just, I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I knew that if he was open, that I was going to want to date him. And 
we both waited until I was done with my, my 12 steps and then that was it. And when it comes to me and, and the women that I sponsor, it's... And so they, did you break up with your sponsor over that? You started dating and what? She, I, I, I broke up with her because of, uh, I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't be honest anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew she was highly against that relationship. And uh, I knew that she had mentioned a couple of the things that I had told her to her husband. Okay. And so those two things put up a wall yeah. that I, and it's, it's, that was, I could have talked to her about it. Yeah. I could have said, Hey, let's get through this. But I wasn't mature enough in my sobriety yet and who I was. And I didn't have the communication skills to be able to do that at that point. Do you want to mention her by name? Do you want, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to, comes to the way that I sponsor and somebody that wants to date, something that was told to me that rings true is when we work the 12 steps, we change. Everything about us changes. And what we originally may have come in with being drawn to, attracted to, find and, and finding that that person, that personality, amazing, might change. Hundred percent. And if that happens, then all of a sudden you're stuck. Whereas if you just take a little bit of a break and you say, "Okay, let me just go through the twelve steps, do what I'm supposed to do, focus on me, my relationship with my higher power, and getting sober, and then let the chips fall where they may." That, that can be very, very helpful. However, if somebody says, mm, nah, I'm not going to do this, I get it, but I'm not going to do that. I am not going to not sponsor them because they choose to date. It's not in our literature that we're not, that we're supposed to say, you can't date or I'm not going to sponsor you. Do you have any regrets about going against your sponsor as advice and, and starting to date at six months or not really? The only reason why I don't is because that relationship enabled me to get to another spiritual bottom. That was a relationship that I talked about at the very beginning. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. It was I thought you were gonna say something different. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say I thought you were gonna say, no, I don't regret it because it was a beautiful relationship. He was a beautiful man and I learned so much about love. But no. you're like you're like, no bro, take me to a new level. Okay, let me tell you. Let, let me explain. There were some beautiful some things about talk, that relationship. Okay. Yeah. There real were beautiful, talk. beautiful things about that relationship. <laughs> One thing that I I loved is that I was finally honest with somebody that I was in a relationship with. Totally honest. Uh-huh. I was able to say things that I would hide from other people. The things that I didn't like about myself, my insecurities, the, the little things that we do in order to look good. I didn't have to do that with him. And I kissed somebody for the first time without being drunk. You know, oh, I, oh, I hug, like it's so bizarre. I learned oh, how to do God. things yeah. sober. It's creepy. And right? Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> it's scary is what it is. Yeah, How am I supposed I to do this? Yeah. <laughs> but the the relationship overall was not healthy. So m- most of the time you would think that people would say, oh, well, don't you regret that you dated him because it ended up being a horrible relationship anyway. However, I would not have known how broken I was if I had not gone through that relationship. I would not have realized all the other areas in my life that I needed to heal from if I had not been in that relationship. It was your path. It was my path, and so I'm grateful for it. So how long did it take you to re-up with the sponsor after you got sponsor-free at six months? Oh, immediately. I've never not had a sponsor. Oh, good. That was my next question. Have you ever sponsored yourself for any extended period of time, and how did that work out for you? No, 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 no. I immediately got another sponsor, had her for many years. She went through health issues, and so she had to let 
go of all of her sponsees. And so I got another one. She ended up moving. So I got another one. And the, uh, I had, uh, I had a sponsor for a handful of years and she had 30 years sober in the program. She was amazing. And I learned so much about the traditions and, oh, cool. you know, I just went deeper about the history. She showed me language of the heart, the book, and I learned a lot and it was just incredible. And then when the pandemic hit, she decided that she was no longer going to be a part of AA anymore. And I was shocked. Really? She straight up told you that on a phone call? She called me on the phone and said, I cannot sponsor you anymore. I am not going to be in the program anymore. How long has she been sober? She'd been sober 30 years. Are you serious? Yes. yes. And I was shook. Shook. I thought she was going to be my girl to the end. And so suddenly that's a wild phone. That's probably in the top five most wild phone calls you'll ever get in your life. Yes. And, and you know, you, you can't, you have to still be understanding and allow the person to be where they're at and not, you know, it says in the big book, you know, if you think that you found another way, our hats are off to you. So I had to be kind. And so is she still out of the program or yes, she bailed. Yeah, she's out. I bumped into her uh, the other day at a grocery store. She seemed to be doing okay. I don't know. She she seemed sober. I don't know. I don't know. You just never, you never know what anybody's path is going to be. Well, the pandemic, I'm sure shook a lot of people up and a lot of people weren't going for health reasons because they're older and they're like, I'm not going to those meetings anymore. And then they're like, I don't like Zoom either. And then all of a sudden they haven't been to a meeting in a year and yes. it's the middle of the pandemic and she called you and quit. Yeah. <laughs> and it was right when meetings had shut down. Yeah, I'm sure and she Before was Zoom out. had started. So there were no Zoom meetings. Christ. I couldn't go to a meeting. And so I had no sponsor and I'm like freaking out because That's crazy. I, once I got sober, I like to consider myself, I call myself the obeyer. Right. If you tell me what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to do it. I found out that the 12 steps work. And so I just do what I'm told yeah. the, the program says you need to have a sponsor. I'm going to have a sponsor. Yeah. And so suddenly I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have a sponsor. And yeah. so I started like reaching out. And there was a girl that I knew from the Frisco group. Now, I've, I'd known her for years. I for work, I'm a commercial property manager. And so I have lots of properties all over DFW. And at the time, at the company that I was with, I had one in McKinney, and I would go to the Frisco AA group. Love that group. Such good sobriety there. And I met a girl named Dawn, and she was always so kind and so sweet. She'd occasionally just reach out and check in on me. And through the years, we just kind of touch base occasionally. She was an acquaintance, nothing more. Well, when the pandemic hit, she reached out and said, hey, just want to touch base and let you know, like, think we should, you know, have some women that we're still talking to while all this craziness is happening. And I'm like, well, listen, I suddenly don't have a sponsor. But here's the thing I had in my wealth of knowledge, this this list of requirements now for a sponsor. What are they? What's that list? Well, Give me a few. It's, it's no longer that list anymore. What was it? What was it? What <laughs> this, were you? The, the list that I did have was they needed to have a lot more sobriety than I did. Okay. They needed to have a higher power that might be similar to my higher power um, because sometimes uh, I was afraid that there would be friction if it wasn't like that. They, I really wanted her to have a successful marriage because I want to have a successful marriage one day. And so I- What about, was one of the requirements that she be a mother? No, that's interesting. Mm -mm, Nope, it wasn't. But- um, 
my my sponsor that left the program had all of those things. Mm-hmm. And so when I didn't have a sponsor and I was praying, thinking, who am I going to ask? Who am I going to ask? Dawn and I have, uh, we got sober around the same time. She has a, a like a year or so more than I do. But it was, and, and her higher power and my higher power at the time were, were kind of different. And she does have a very, very healthy, amazing marriage. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, she's got one of the boxes checked, I guess. Maybe. I don't know what else to do. And so I said, look, you know, by any chance, would you be willing to temporarily sponsor me at least until I find one, until we can get back to meetings? And she said, well, I don't know anything about temporarily sponsoring people. <laughs> <laughs> That's not in our literature. That's a good answer. <laughs> she said, but I'm happy to sponsor you and we'll see how it goes. And if at any time you decide it's not going to work out, then just let me know and, and we'll get you another sponsor. And I said, okay, I'm willing. Yeah. And it's like, I think that my higher power took all my other options away and highlighted the, the person that he had for me because being uh, sponsored by this woman has taken me into a whole other level of recovery that I didn't even know was possible. Um, we have what we call an accountability meeting once a, me- once a week where her and all of her sponsees get on a little Zoom call and it's uh, meeting steps in service. And so we each talk, how many meetings have we gone to that week? (laughs) What step work are we doing? That's good for you. You're the obeyer. I am the obeyer. (laughs) And what service work are we we doing that week? It's like when you were a little kid, they're like, come up here and read your essay in front of the class. (laughs) Same thing. You're like, I've been to four meetings. This is what I'm doing for service. Well, here's the thing. (laughs) This is what I'm doing. It's so okay for us to be transparent and say, you know what? I can't believe I haven't been to a meeting this week. And I, and it shows because I'm freaking insane, you know, or I really need help figuring out how to be of service. Yeah. You know, there's opportunity and I'm afraid because of whatever reason. And after we each share, we can also talk about what's going on in our lives. And so it took, I am naturally introverted and it, I, it's hard for me to get real close, close, close with, with people. And this has helped with that so greatly because now I have a group of women who, when things are happening once a week, I'm, I'm on the phone and saying, you know what, this is what's going on this week and I'm really struggling or guess what? I got the promotion and I can't believe it. And we're celebrating. And we also do like vision board stuff together and we go on trips together and we just, it just enabled me to really open up and allow women to really know me and for me to really know and be there and support other women. And also, um, when it comes to being of service more than just the, well, I chair meetings or I'm on the steering six month steering committee position. It, it's more like, Hey, there's the women's international conference that's coming up. Are you going to volunteer? Hey, there's a, a position on the panel that I'd really like you to be on. And so now all of a sudden I'm going to be on a panel. What? Nice. Like, what's happening? You know? Yeah. And I, and I'm, and I'm, I'm able to step up and, and do things that I know the past, you know, I started, she started sponsoring me at nine or 10 years and now I'm at 12. So the last handful of years, all of a sudden I've blossomed more. More has been revealed. More has come up. And I, my insights have bloomed a little bit more and who I am called to be. So it's been really great. When I am looking for a sponsor and I'm between sponsors and they've either died, they've moved off, it hasn't worked out, whatever, 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 I got this little list of things. I still have the list. You might not, but I, I still have a list of things, requirements that I'm looking for in a sponsor is that I would like them to check all the boxes. The first one for me, and this might change over time, is I would like them to have more more sober time than I have. Mm-hmm. I would like them to be smarter than I am. 
I want them to be more spiritual than I am. Mm. I want them to be married longer than I am. I want them to have a good marriage. I want them to be a father. I want them to have children. I want them to be in a place where they have time for me and they're able to hang out with me and teach me and talk to me and help me. And the other thing I would like, the other criteria I have is that they are an entrepreneur and that they're, Ooh, a, okay. that, that they're a sole proprietor yeah. or they own a company. That's who I've been around my whole life yeah. is people that work for themselves. Yeah. So I want them to be self-employed. That That's important to me because I am, and I just want to be able to relate to that. Scott checks all those boxes for me. Nice. And several other people have checked those boxes for me as well. And I feel like that my job as a sponsor, when I sponsor people and Scott's job, when he sponsors me, really is to help lead me closer to my higher power. Absolutely. That's it. They're my guide. I feel like a lot of times I think in metaphors, my mind thinks in like pictures and metaphors, you know, I have dyslexia. It's a learning difference called dyslexia. And so I relate to um, visuals a lot more so than audio cues or written cues, but more visual cues. And so I think about like, I don't know if you've ever been mountain climbing or uh, anything extreme in the outdoors where you're on a path. Um, whether you're hiking up a yes. mountain to snowboard or you're hiking up a mountain just to get to the top or whatever, a lot of times you're on a trail mm-hmm. and there's usually somebody in front of you and there's usually somebody behind you. And I feel like that Scott and I um, and the people that I sponsor were on this trail and it's mm-hmm. a spiritual trail and we're going up this mountain up into the sky closer to God and up into heaven. Mm-hmm. And he's in front of me on the trail and he's in front of me on the trail with 31 years of, or yeah, 31, 32 years of sobriety, I'm behind him, following him with 22, 23 years of sobriety, and the cats that I sponsor are behind me, following me up the spiritual trail up the mountain with anywhere between six months and 16 years of sobriety. Beautiful. And so as we're rolling up this trail, and the guys behind me ask me a question about what's coming up on the trail, for them it could be marriage, mm-hmm. it could be like, hey, I'm thinking about having a kid. Or what do you think? Do you think I should get a dog? Or how many meetings a week do I need to go to? Or what do I say to my girlfriend when she says this to me? Or how do I conduct myself in this business situation? If they yell that question to me up the pathway and I don't know the answer, I can kind of yell up to Scott on the pathway in front of me. I'm like, hey, Scott, this guy's got a question back behind us, a couple hundred yards. guy I'm sponsored. He wants to know about the six and seven step. Can you and I sit down and talk about that for about an hour before I go talk to him about six and seven? And then Scott's like, hell yeah. And then him and I talk for an hour about six and seven. He really just fills me up with good information. You know, I already know about six and seven. I could right. probably I could probably just answer the dude. I could probably just answer him. <laughs> but I like talking to Scott. Yes. Because he's smarter than I am. He's spiritual. I am. He's more sober than I am. He's been married longer than I am. He's been a dad longer than I am. He's an, and he's a business owner. So I respect it. I just totally respect him. And then he just fills me all kinds of good information about six and seven, step six and seven. And I can yell back at that guy. So one thing that I've noticed... Um when you're talking right there is that not not just the the amount of time but also the the quality right that he has the quality of uh, that he has uh, what how he is spiritual the quality of his spirituality the quality of his marriage the quality of his time and when it comes to my current sponsor quality far outweighed the quantity because even like with the accountability meetings it's not a taskmaster well, did you obey? Did you do this, what you were supposed? It's from a place of total love. And this is what I've been taught to do. And this is how, I, this is what's worked for me. 
and the the quality of her spirituality, her spirituality and my spirituality are very different, but they co-mingle and they intertwine. It's like a dance almost. And there are, there are things that she will say and I'll be like, Ooh, I've never thought of it that way. That's beautiful. And vice versa. And so it's this, this beautiful thing that has happened that's, that's emerged. And as long as I was open-minded enough to say, for instance, I would not choose a sponsor that had 30 years sober and was, but never went to meetings and wasn't of service and, you know, wasn't working a really good program and might have been married for 25 years, but they've really hate each other and they don't spend any time <laughs> together. And they, he bitches about her in meetings all the time. You know, those kinds of things where it's like, okay, yes, I hear exactly what you're saying that it's like, you're looking for all of these things. We want the quality as well. And I feel like I almost had closed myself off to a beautiful option and what God really had for me because I, I was not open-minded enough to say, okay, God, what do you, where do you want me to go? Like, who do you have for me? And when I did that and really all the other options were taken away from me again, there he is. He highlights a person and he was like, here you go. And it's been, it's been beautiful. The quality is so important. You've been led like that. You know, I don't really know you that well. Just talking to you today, I'm really getting to know you way better than I've known you before, but it seems like your higher power has led you through your sobriety to that sobriety like that because he did that when it when you put that person's name on your heart, who should I tell? Who mm -hmm. should I tell? Is the guy your singing partner in the choir? He led you to that guy, but you didn't know why. And then your sponsor kind of called you with thirty something years, thirty one years sober during the pandemic. Hey, I'm not going to do it anymore, and then led you over to this person. Yes. So we just have to be open to being swayed and directed and moved in in different directions. When we are willing to say, "I'm going to give listening a shot," <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and see. Uh, beautiful things emerge. Now, sometimes I mess up, you know, I, I might think, oh, that's definitely, I got a download from my higher power and this is exactly what I need to be. And it's a disaster. It's all me. It's all ego, whatever it might be. But my heart was in the right place. And so when I make a mess of my, of a situation, I can stop and say, God, you know, I made a mess of this. I thought I was listening to you. And instead I was listening to myself. Will you please come and help me untangle this web of a mess that I've done. And there's grace and there's courage to, to right my wrongs and, and I can continue to move on. And it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. I remember my first five years of sobriety, I got sober in Southern California and I moved to the Hawaiian islands. And so when I was living in Hawaii and I was living in California, early sobriety, first five years, I, I remember thinking, I remember thinking, man, I am really doing good. Like I'm developing a lot of character development, which I never really did before. Mm -hmm. I'm getting healthier. I'm more spiritual. I feel better. And one of the things that dawned on me, which was crazy to me to even think about, is that sobriety and going to AA meetings on a weekly basis multiple times taught me the skill of listening. And what I mean by that is a lot of these times, if you haven't, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't been to a recovery meeting, they last an hour. Okay. You might get to talk for three. Maybe, and maybe not, mm -hmm. which means you got to listen for 57 minutes and say nothing. Just, I mean, you can daydream and you can wander and you can do whatever, but that probably would not be the best choice. The best choice would be to friggin' listen. You're, right. you're at an AA meeting, put your iPhone down, listen to the 25 people that are going to share because they're going to talk for either, you know, anywhere between 45 seconds and three minutes. So friggin' listen to them. And even if you don't like who they are and that you feel like they say the same thing every time, you know, like 
some people have a rote uh, share that they give on like honesty and then a rote share they give on um, step one or they say the same thing every time. I just realized at, at about five years sober, I was like, focus, Michael, focus, mm. listen to what they're saying. Remember their name. Remember what they say. And every meeting, I was able to take something away from that meeting by listening that allowed me to to make my life better and refine me and, and, and build me up and get me closer to my higher power. And then another thing I noticed, um, I don't even know when this was, I, I started to think about like, what do you mean? You've been sober a long time, dude. What are you, what are you doing? What are you trying to do? And this, 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 this voice came to me or this message came to me and I, and I just started to think, well, I think what I'm trying to do with this long-term sobriety is I'm trying to get more God and less me. Mm. I think I'm trying to get more God and less me. And there's a bunch of different ways to do that. And it's based off the 12 steps and staying in action and be a service. And so as I do that, every day I feel like I'm getting closer and closer to God and getting less and less me. And there's less stuff blocking me off from the sunlight of the spirit. And that allows me to wear life like a loose garment and be happy in my own skin almost all the time. And that's a blessing for me. And it's been something that has really revolutionized my my life. Mm-hmm. And it's make it easier. Like... My life is easy today, but if you looked at me and critically and you're like, well, dude, what about this? You should be freaked out about that. Well, what about that? I'd be super concerned about that if I were you. That should be giving you high anxiety. The answer to all those things is no. I rebuke that, you know. I lean into my higher power. I believe in God and I believe he's going to take care of me. And by the way, now I have this outlook on life where I believe everything happens for a, a reason Everything happens for a reason, no matter what it is. Even if I get cut off in traffic and don't make the green light as I'm driving down the road, that happened for a reason because God didn't want me another two stoplights down the road because there might be a police, an yes. active police chase in going and they're chasing a bad guy and they could have hit me in my driver's door and died. So I was, wasn't supposed to be there. I was supposed to be back here at 200 yards where there could be somebody having a medical emergency and unconscious driving their car and hit me, you know? So. Um, the message to myself is just calm down, dude. Yes. Just calm down and believe everything happens for a reason. And when hard things come up, um, whether it's financially, sexually, emotionally, physically, problems going on with loved ones, sickness, illness, whatever, I just feel like, hey, man, it's just how it's supposed to be right now. God's got me right where he wants me. Everything's right on time. And it's crazy to be able to live like that. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I, I, I remember somebody somebody was speaking. I was listening to a podcast or a YouTube video or something, and somebody talked about how um, he was sponsoring this guy, and this guy went up to him, and he said, look, man, <clears throat> you know, every time I call you, you're telling me, oh, how, did you go to a meeting today? Have you prayed? This and that. He said, look, I got, I got real problems. You know, I, <laughs> I, I can't sleep at night because I can't, I, I'm worried if I'm going to be able to pay my bills. And, and, and I'm so stressed out that, that I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack because my wife is constantly just coming at me with all these things that I need to do. And every time I call you, you're talking from, talking about things that don't make, I have serious problems and I need serious <laughs> answers, right? <laughs> Are you even listening to me? Yeah, you're not. This is just ridiculous. And so this man answered him and he said, what if you had still all these issues coming up, you know, and, and you, you weren't sure how you're going to pay your bills, but 
you weren't stressed about it and you were able to have a peaceful night of sleep? And what if when your wife was coming at you and talking to you, you didn't feel so stressed like you were going to have a heart attack, your your uh, attitude was peaceful and one where you could just listen and start having solutions pop up just randomly. He said, would those still be problems in your life? And the man had to stop and ask himself like, hmm, I don't know. He said, when I tell you, have you prayed about it? When I suggest that you do step 11, when I tell you, have you been to a meeting? Those are the things that will change you from the inside so that you can match your circumstances with serenity like it talks about. When calamity is there and the waves are crashing, all of a sudden you're walking on the water full of peace, hand in hand with the higher power, and you're able to be able to live the life that you want to live despite the things that come your way, is it still a problem? And that's what what AA teaches us, is the real solution. And when you were talking right now, that's what I heard time and time and time again, that real solution, just more God, more God. Yeah, there is a solution. And guess what? If you're out there listening to this podcast, there are people that are living that lifestyle. Come into the program if you feel like and if you want to, if you're supposed to, and find us. We are here. We are willing to help you. As a matter of fact, we're required to help you to maintain our own sobriety. So come into the meetings, listen with your ears, watch with your eyes, and decide who is for you and who has what you want. And then reach out to them and just ask them, will you help me? Because we're just, you know, it's like so many of us when we get here in early sobriety, we're in all different phases of of where we are mentally, physically, socially, sexually. You know, we just, we're so farkled up in so many different ways, whether we realize it or not. And it takes a long time to untangle that. And the chances of you doing that by yourself are slim. So it's better, in my opinion, to get get a sponsor, somebody that can help you, get you a nice set of literature. And do what that dude says, even if you don't think it's going to work, even if you don't think it's going to work, because they're going to lead you to a new place that's going to allow you to wear life like a loose garment, which is uh, a gift that I don't feel like you can even put a price tag on. And in retrospect, when I look back, that's the reason that I drank and did so much drugs is because I did not possess, I was not in possession of the life skills that allowed me to go out there and act like an adult on a daily basis. I was, um, I didn't have them. I did. Not have the, I, Neither I, did lo- I. I looked like an adult. <laughs> I looked like an adult. I masqueraded as an adult. But guess what? If you could look down inside of my soul and see me for real, for real, what you would see was a 13 or a 14 or 15 year old little boy mm-hmm. who was uh, confused and scared and lost and used alcohol as a crutch for life. And I was self-medicating heavily with marijuana and alcohol and drugs and girls and crime to try to just get through another day, man. Mm -hmm. I wasn't into character development. I wasn't into good food choices. I wasn't into being a good boyfriend. I didn't want to be a good employee. I was just trying to get through another day. And then after I got sober, I had a profound spiritual experience, a profound personality uh, change, which allowed me to do, say, think, and feel things that I could not do before on my own. But I wasn't able to do it by myself. I was part of the equation, but I was not the whole equation. There were two other parts of the equation. It's a three-part equation. It's me, God, and other people. Absolutely. So me, God, and other people. And then within the trifecta of that uh, threesome there, I started to learn other little finer points within that which was be of service to others. And when that was first suggested to me, I was like, why? (laughs) I was was like, why, why would I, why would I do that? 
Why would I be of service? But I was so racked up in the enigma of the mystery of selfishness and self-centeredness, admired and just being lost, uh, that I, I just... It just seemed like a waste of time to want to be of service to other people. It seemed like a waste of time because I was in such trouble on my own. My life was in such a series of catastrophes and red red light emergencies that I was like, yo, I'm drowning, bro. I am drowning on a daily basis Mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do. And then once I got in AA, God fixed me up and put me in a position where I was on a stable platform, on a stable foundation. I had a relationship with him. All the things that had blocked me off from the sunlight were removed and he was shining down his love and grace upon me. And then I was able to look around and be like, actually freaking breathe mm-hmm. and sleep through the night and not have nightmares. And I was in a position to go out and be of service to people. And that just took me to a, a deeper level or a higher level of spirituality. And how beautiful is it to understand the gift of service? Like... <laughs> I can't believe that it feels so good to be of service. They they, they tell me that. (laughs) I'd be like, I don't believe you. I didn't either. At the beginning, I'm like, yeah. Sponsoring? What? It seems like a lot. Yeah. seems like, what do you want me to do? You want me to like, you want me to be a greeter? (laughs) And they're like, yeah. And I was like, well, I don't really want to do that because I don't like people. Right. I'm like, well, all right. Well, then why don't you hang out after the meeting and stack the chairs up? Because we got to put the chairs up. The church that we're having the meeting in requires us to put the chairs up. Why don't you stay and do that? And I said, I don't want to do that either, man. I really don't want to do anything, you know. And, uh, you know, I was humbled by alcohol and drug addiction. And it got me, uh, you said you're the obeyer. I have another term for that for me. I'm, I'm, I'm yes, sir. You know, mm. I'm a yes, sir type of guy because alcohol beat me so yes. tremendously and so badly that when I got a sponsor, he's like, Mike, go home and read. There is a solution and more about alcoholism. I was like, yes, sir. He's like, Mike, meet me tomorrow night at 630 at Coco's. And we're going to talk about what you read last night and uh, go home and read those two chapters and, and meet me at Coco's. I was like, yes, sir. And he's like, Okay, be here tomorrow night, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna start your steps tomorrow night. And I was like, yes, sir. Everything he told me to do, I had been administered such a ter- terrific beating um, by alcohol and drug addiction, and I just was in a yes, sir frame of mind. Yeah. I just did everything that dude said, and I've been sober twenty three years now. Yeah, because uh, I don't want to die. You know, I just don't want to die. Has the desire to drink or use drugs again returned since you have been sober? And if so, what have you done about it? And we haven't really talked about drugs. Were you into drugs at all? And has the desire to drink or use drugs returned since you've been sober? What did you do about it? So I was into drugs. I was an upper. (laughs) I loved uppers. I don't, I don't, I didn't like downers at all. They made me paranoid. Like what? Cocaine or Red Bull? Cocaine. Yeah. No, Red Bull, whatever. (laughs) Please. Come on. (laughs) Give me the real stuff. Okay. Cocaine. So I did. I liked, I liked cocaine. Um, I smoked weed occasionally. But I usually would get so paranoid, I'd end up like wanting to hide in the fetal position in a closet thinking somebody's going to come get me. So that one wasn't really anything too serious for me. And I tried Coke a few times without drinking and it really, it was very whatever for me. It was the combination of the two. Once I drank, I wanted to do some Coke so that then I felt in control. I felt alive. A lot of people I do that. Just, they get yes. buzzed. They're like, where's the cocaine at? That was me, my friend. That was me. Where's it at? 
and I always found it. You know, we can sniff each other out. <laughs> I so would look to speak. at the, yeah. yes, exactly. I would look in the in the bar, uh, and I would see who was going to the bathroom a few times. I'd be really? like, there she is, my new best friend. <laughs> they really do that in the bathroom. Yes. that's very unsanitary. What would yes. y'all do? Like, use a little bullet or something? That's... You could use a bullet. You could use the the palm, like the right yeah, here and yeah. the top of your hand. You could use a fingernail. You so, know, what do you baggies. say when you follow a strange girl into the bathroom? What do you say? You're like, hey, girl, you got any blood? <laughs> I mean, how do you? So do how that? would I do it? Let me see. Because I always figured it out. You first of all, you compliment. Oh, girl, I love your skirt. Where did you get that? And she says, oh, thanks. I got it. Whatever, whatever. And yeah. Like, oh, who are you here with? And blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Listen, I've been wondering, do you know if anybody has any party favors? Oh, that's what they call party uh-huh. favors. Do you have any party favors or yay yo? There was always like little something, whatever was popular to say at the time. But uh-huh. yeah, party favors was always a good one. And then she'd either, if they were cool. Yeah. They would share. Yeah. If they were not cool, they would point you in the direction of who yeah. to get it from. Go talk to that guy. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so that was as far as drugs. Uh, as far as the desire to drink, has it come back in my life? Since I relapsed and reestablished on October 5th, the desire to drink has not returned. Um, not once. And there have been times when I have been presented with an opportunity Mm-hmm. And my mind will say, oh my gosh, you know, you could totally have a drink right now and nobody would know. You mean like on a date or something? Well, the first time I remember it happening was when I was flying to Germany and I was in first class. I like ended up in first class, like totally. I was like, what is, how did this happen? <laughs> and I was alone in first class, like going, oh my gosh. And the lady came, the stewardess came by and, and offered me a drink. And I thought, well, nobody would know. And my next thought was, ew, that would totally ruin the whole trip. Like I would never, I wouldn't even remember. And so the thought may come in, but the desire is not followed by that thought the disease will come in and say all kinds of crazy stuff to me but because i am firmly firmly involved and in the middle of aa i have this protective shield i I think of myself as in the palm of my higher powers hands and it is an impenetrable shield when it comes to the disease of alcoholism Sounds pretty powerful (laughs) it is very powerful because for 19 years i could never say no yeah. For 19 years, the moment somebody suggested it, this feeling inside of me would go off and I'd be like, oh, I got to have it. I got to do it. Yeah. And so now for 12 years, I've been able to say no and not only just been able to say no, but actually mean, I don't know. I don't want it. Yeah. It's like when somebody offers me broccoli. No, thanks. You know, <laughs> my wife does that all the time. <laughs> She's like, we're having broccoli. Me and my kid look at each other. We're like, man, I like broccoli. You've done that 35 <laughs> times this year. But we eat it anyway. But it's, I just want to say that broccoli is not that good. Um, it's not my favorite. You could put butter on it. It's edible. Salt and pepper. I mean, occasionally. But I don't really like it. What's your favorite vegetable? Do you have one? Lemon pepper is good on broccoli. My, I, I, like, I enjoy a lot of vegetables. Uh, I'm getting good at... Oh, I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm not getting good. I am good. I have been good for a long time, and I will continue to be good for a long time. I am a good cook. And so... Oh. Yeah, right on. Thank you. Nice. Thank you for knowing that. Um, <laughs> and so my latest thing, I always have a lot of new things and latest things. And one of the things that I'm really into lately is roasting root vegetables. Root I, vegetables. I roast root vegetables. So what I do is I I, I go to I, but 
I go to expensive places. Like you got to go to Central Market. Of you got to go to HEB. You got to go somewhere that's expensive. Don't be scared to spend seven or eight dollars on a bushel of 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 carrots. Really? Yeah, and they can't be like just the orange carrots. That's not what I'm talking the about. The purple ones yes, and the white you. ones. Yes, yeah. Yes. Okay. Go, go to Central Market. Get your little seven dollars together. Go to Central Market and get you. Some purple carrots, get you some white carrots, get you some orange carrots, get you some uh, new potatoes, like little tiny little new potatoes that are about as big as a golf ball. Okay. Cut those in half, throw them in a bowl, uh, put a little olive oil in there. It's just real easy. Put a little olive oil in there, a little salt, a little pepper, a little garlic salt, whatever you like, paprika, I don't care. Put, Put your seasonings on it, spin it in that little metal bowl with some olive oil, take all those root vegetables, throw them on a tray and put them in your toaster oven, you know, and then put them on bake. For about 30 minutes and about halfway through, if you want to take them out at about 15 minutes and spin them one time, so Mm -hmm. they'll cook at at different levels and they come out and it is so, so good. There's a lot of sugar that's hidden in those root vegetables that is activated by the baking process. Okay. So when you eat them, they're really um, delicious. I'm going to have to try it. And it's it's good to serve with like a protein, like a steak or a salmon or a piece of chicken and then a little little fresh salad on the side. Nice. I'm definitely going to try it. Sounds like it's going to be my new uh, favorite vegetable. And I'm also, this is another thing I'm doing that's new. It's, um, I make a, um, we go to Mexican restaurants all the time. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with about five years, uh, Mexican seafood cocktails. And so that is something that I really like. And the price of that at the restaurant has almost doubled now. It's about $30 for for, for a Mexican seafood cocktail. So I learned how to make it myself. I get the boiled shrimp. I won't go into all the details. Let me know whenever um, I'm invited. <laughs> yeah, I make good food. I'm really that sounds so good. I'm good, and I can cook. It's a lot of fun. And that's one of the things that I've gotten into into sobriety because I like to provide healthy food for people. Yes, me too. The longer I've been sober, the more I realize that food choices have a big impact Huge. on how I feel. And and I'm getting older every day. I get freaking older. Yeah. And I can't eat pizza at eleven o'clock at night. I used to be able to eat pizza at eleven o'clock at night and go to sleep. And then now I have heartburn. Yeah, I, the world I, of heartburn. Yeah. And yeah. I used to love Cheez-Its and Dr. Pepper. I oh. used to eat Cheez-Its and Oh, no. <laughs> but now <laughs> I'm 53 and I can't do it anymore. No, no. And eating healthy, the way that you feel is so good. And then the next thing you know, you're craving the healthy food. I yeah. am a pretty clean eater myself. I am struggling with sugar. I love sugar. I mm-hmm. try not to love it, but it's I know a lot of oh, um, so tricks when it comes to a sweet tooth. I, I have all the, the healthy little tricks. I can give you some recipes. They're good ones. I know people use stevia and all no, that. No, no, no. I use the natural, like I use um, ripe bananas, raw honey, and maple syrup. For what? For whatever sweet treat I'm going <laughs> to have. Like, yeah. so, so here's a trick. Okay, here's good. one that's really good. Okay, yeah. so if you take a handful of dark chocolate. Yeah like dark chocolate chips and a handful of raw peanut butter. And yeah. there's no sugar in either of them. You yeah. melt it. You can put melt um, in the microwave melt or? a little bit in the, like 30 seconds at most. So it softens it up <laughs> yeah. and you throw in blackberries, bananas, whatever fruit you want. And a little bit of granola uh-huh. and drizzle it with honey. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. You just eat it out of a bowl. I just eat it out of the bowl and it's so good. And it doesn't have any of the carbs in it, you know, yeah, like yeah. any of the flowery stuff. And then there's another one. If you, uh, with, you can bake with coconut flour and almond flour. And if you use maple syrup or honey, raw honey, mm-hmm. it doesn't have the processed white and brown, like all the bad types of sugar for you. And it doesn't have stevia. Mm-hmm. It's just a natural sweetener. That's ab- absolutely delicious. Wow. Have you ever struggled with your weight? Have you ever been, because you're super tiny. I would assume you've always been super tiny. Did you ever like 
struggle with your weight? Oh, yes. Really? Um, never huge. Like I was never like obese or anything like that. But when I got pregnant with my son, uh-huh. oh gosh, it was just <laughs> torture. I don't know nothing about that. Oh my gosh. I, w- I just get, I gained. And I, once I had him, I had to lose, I guess I lost like 40 pounds or 45 pounds, but it took me a while because I thought if I was breastfeeding, it was going to miraculously fall off and it did not. And also my drinking with all the sugar in my drinking, my face was so bloated. Oh, I look at the pictures and I just cringe. I'm like, like, seriously, I got into sobriety and I just took alcohol out and I lost, you know, a good 10, 15 pounds. So there was always extra weight, but my family, the way that I was raised, there was always a huge emphasis on the way that we looked. And my mom and my grandmother always struggled with their weight and they were always obsessed with the number on the scale. And I got to say, man, it's been, it's been a really hard thing for me to figure out how to not allow a number on the scale Mm -hmm. to determine what kind of day I'm going to have. Uh, you know, if I weigh what I want to weigh, life is good. If I don't weigh what I want to weigh, life will be bad. And sometimes I will look in the mirror if I'm off and I will see the a size that I was right when Christian was born. And that's mm-hmm. not even accurate. It's like I got that, that dysmorphia thing going on. And I think a lot of women in recovery, in, uh, addiction and, and, eating stuff and our, our eating health and eating disorders. They, they're so hand in hand. I remember my, my therapist told me one time, she was like, look, I wouldn't categorize you as having an eating disorder, <laughs> but, you're no. close. but you're like right <laughs> on the line. Like if you take one step over here yeah. and society is so driven on how a woman looks yeah. that to be able to be free of that is is a is a journey that that has been uh, it's been one that I've worked through in recovery as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I bet a lot of women struggle with that. I, I see all the commercials on TV and stuff, and I'm like, they talk about hyaluronic acid and all this stuff, and I'm like, and I see all the stuff that's in my <laughs> wife's bathroom, and I'm like, I think you spend six hundred a month on. Like what I would call like fake uh, science yes. and fake bullshit. Yes. <laughs> it appears to be like you're falling for the advertising. And form. when you get to be, you know, in your 40s and your 50s and, and as you as you continue to age, I don't, I'm not in the, my 50s yet, but when I when I hit my 40s and, and age started to, to appear on my face and my, my silver hair, I had a decision that I had to make, you know, am I going to fight it and try to look 20 still and try to look 30 still, or can I just embrace it and just be the most beautiful 44 year old that I can be? And, and, and that's what I want because there's freedom in that one. And so every day, every, well, starting early in sobriety, uh, not only do I get on my knees and ask God to keep me sober every day, I also ask him, show me who I am and where I get my worth and value from. Because I got my worth and value from the from all of y'all, everybody else in the world. It was all external. It, I couldn't even call it self-esteem. I called it other esteem. If you liked me, then I was okay. If you thought I was beautiful, then I was more than okay. And to know that that is fault, that is so unhealthy and it leads to nothing but pain because one person might not think I'm beautiful <laughs> and, um, or might not like my personality. And the next thing you know, I'm not okay. And so I had to stop and ask God, please, please show me where I get my worth and value from because I'm getting my worth and value from all these other people and that's wrong. Now I, I am able to get my worth and value from my higher power. 
I am not worth more because my skin doesn't have as many wrinkles as she does. I am not worth more because I am thinner than she is. I am not better than, I am not less than because she's, you know, I'm not, it's not this competition anymore. It is, I am who I am. Brene Brown says, don't shrink, don't puff up, just stand your sacred ground. And that's what I want to do. I don't want to be less than, I don't want to be better than, I just want to stand and be me and be okay with me. And so again, I don't talk about self-esteem. I talk about God esteemed. I find out who I am and what I really am worth and my character and my values. And there is confidence in that where I don't have to be like, look at me and how amazing I am. It is, I am simply me and I am okay with me. And that is freedom. That must be fun to talk to your sponsees about that. Try to tell them that these, I'm sure you sponsor girls that are younger than you yes. and you try to explain that to them. So, oh yes. Some of them here, some of them don't. Not exactly. Some are 25, just <laughs> super high. They're exactly. Like, they're like, oh, what I got the young ones. They, yeah, they're, they're gorgeous. Like, they're like, what are you talking about? We'll talk about uh, it in 20 years, honey. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, we'll circle back and hit that again. <laughs> Um, so how did your scoliosis in your back handle pregnancy? Was it, did you, how's your scoliosis? Is it good or what's the deal? So it went from a 60 degree curve to an 18. So mm-hmm. they were able to correct it significantly. Um, Is I don't, there hardware in there? Mm-hmm. Oh yes. I have two metal rods that yeah. are fused to Ooh. my spine. The majority <laughs> of my spine is fused together. And they, so I have really good posture. They put that in there when you were super young. <laughs> when like, I was 12. Yes. And there's not only rods, but there's like screws and yeah. just hardware. Same hardware all, that was put in back in the day? Yes. Yes. The same hardware. And I'll always have it. Uh, My back has been okay, but my pregnancy, they had to do a C-section because they said my inability to round my back out that would be necessary during childbirth. They said, we're not even going to try to mess with it. You couldn't get the angle right. No. (laughs) I can't get the angle right on that. We're just not even going to try to mess with it. So I had a cesarean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you have been sober and how have you coped with it? I have experienced anxiety uh, many times, and it's one of the areas of my life where it says in the big book, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. (laughs) (laughs) There have been moments in my sobriety where I'm like, I can't take it anymore. So um, I started singing when I was in the fourth grade. And I realized that I had a, a, a nice voice. And so I was in a show choir and I traveled and we performed. And I remember in the fourth grade being in the school that I was at, I was placed in uh, the, the Christmas play and I had a solo. I was Mary in the fourth grade and everybody else was in the eighth grade. And so I knew I, I felt very out of my element. I was terrified. I shook. I was full of anxiety because, again, when you are standing on a stage and you don't know who you are and you think that you're a horrible person and you're so broken and you are are coming from a place of shame to open up your voice and sing and have be so vulnerable that type of anxiety and the fe- <laughs> and also being other esteemed what if he don't like me what if she thinks it sounds terrible the the anxiety <laughs> was horrific <laughs> probably every probably every singer thinks that <laughs> it was so horrible and it would get to the point like when i was in college i was a, a vocal performance major and when i was in college i would i would sing i would have performances and i remember this one guy came up afterward and said oh my gosh you were so beautiful she's and he said i would have never known you were nervous except the skirt you were wearing was vibrating because of how much your legs were shaking i'm like oh so embarrassing uh so once i got sober i thought okay great 
now everything's going to be better. <laughs> I'm not going to have to worry about anxiety anymore. Yeah, yeah. And it's still been a part of my life. Um, it hasn't been until recently, probably the last handful of years, that, that anxiety has really fallen off. But it's just like the 12 steps. I always, I continue to work the 12 steps. I'm never done. I continue to do the things that I have been taught when it comes to my anxiety over and over and over again. And little by little, it gets less and less. And this last year... I don't think I've had anxiety, not once. I haven't had a panic attack, nothing. And it, it was so debilitating that one of my semesters at college, I had to medically withdraw because I couldn't even get to class because my anxiety attacks would be when I would be driving. And my panic attacks, I couldn't even get to class because I would get so dizzy from them. And there were times when I would be singing on the stage and I would get walk off the stage, burst into tears and go straight into straight home into my room and in the bed for the rest of the day because I was so exhausted from the panic attack. They were debilitating for me. And so to be able to be free of that is is huge, huge blessing. It's probably based off your spiritual condition. Like, you know, you got a higher power now, you know, you got a God He's going to take care of you no matter what. So you don't have to freak out. And I don't have to worry that it's it's going to be okay if somebody isn't isn't a fan of mine. You know, like, <laughs> if if I say something and you it doesn't it doesn't drive with you. If I if I think I'm being funny and you don't think it's funny, I'm like, oh, right, well, you do you, boo. You know what I mean? <laughs> Everything's going to be okay. I can respect it. I don't have to I don't have to be liked by everybody anymore. It's beautiful. Yeah, I've had anxiety and uh, sobriety, and uh, for me, around uh, a while, it was based on airplane rides. Like, I travel a lot, but I'm a big dude. I'm like 6'4", 250 pounds. I'm a big dude. And so, like, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but those airline seats are crazy small. Yes. And so I would get in these, especially if I had to sit on the window, no thank you, or the oh. middle aisle, no, the middle seat, no thank you. If I'm on the aisle, I, I feel like I could possibly get out, and I don't know what I think, but I feel better on the aisle. And I had to, like, go on YouTube and, like, search like what a, ways to cope with it you know like anxiety because i would start thinking about the plane ride the night before mm-hmm. you know i'd be in bed the night before going to chicago the next day i'd be thinking about man oh it's my. coming yeah i'd be like i gotta get on that airplane tomorrow but somehow that's fallen off i guess i just forgot that well I i'll tell you what food yeah. And your diet has a lot to do yeah. with our mental and emotional well-being. Don't like, drink six cups of coffee yeah, before you get on the plane. Don't have Red Bull. Don't have sh- the, the, the refined sugar <laughs> thing, too. I mean, that is, is, is huge. When you have a, clean, a cleaner diet, your organs, your systems working better, your hormones are being released, more balanced. It's a whole system that we got going on, and we got to go at it at every angle. Just like in recovery, it's the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual. Same with the anxiety as well. Yeah, I've sponsored a lot of guys in early sobriety. They'll call me, and they'll be like, they'll call me in early sobriety, and they'll be like, hey, Mike, um, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I am freaked out. And I'm like, okay, well, let's let's talk about that. What's going on? And they'll be like, blah, blah, blah. They'll verbally vomit mm-hmm. on me. They'll be like, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, I heard all that. Now let me ask you a few questions. And they'll be like, what? Like, what have you eaten today? You say, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. What have you had to eat today? I'm like, nothing. I was like, have you had any coffee today? And they're like, yes, I've had six. Mm-hmm. I've had six cups of coffee. <laughs> I've had no food. And I smoked about 400 cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And I freaked out. I was like, bro, you are early in sobriety. You are six months sober. Uh, by the time it's 4 p.m., you need to have eaten something. Maybe back off a little bit on the 25 cigarettes and a six cup of coffee. Why don't you grab something to eat? Call me back 
and then I'll meet you at the six o'clock meeting tonight. Have you been to a noon meeting or a seven thirty a.m. meeting? No, I haven't. I haven't mm-hmm. done that. But I am freaked out, and they used to go into their litany of blah 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 blah. But yeah, no, all those decisions that we make, either in sobriety or out of sobriety, just being a human. I mean, what we put in our body is is such a huge, huge determiner of how we're going to feel, especially the older that we get. Yes. In, in my experience, yes. Like I said earlier, I can't do what I did when I was thirty Me at neither. this age. All right, let's turn our attention to the literature. Can you select and talk about any one of the 12 steps that you would like to highlight and discuss? And I'd like you to read that step first and then go ahead and tell us a little bit about the step that you select. So for me, I don't really know if this is going to fall under a step or not. I think it's more the program as a whole. Okay. It says in literature about how the purpose of this book is to bring you into a relationship with a higher power that will help solve your problem, right? Mm -hmm. One thing that was highlighted to me as I was going through the book and it just jumped out at me, I don't know how much sobriety I had at the time, but it was probably a couple of years. On page 29 of the big book, it says each individual in the personal stories in the back of the book describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God, not how he got sober, not how he stopped drinking. And it was so interesting when I realized what that sentence said, because when I first got sober, my sponsor told me, I want you to read 86 through 88 every day, and I want you to read a story in the back of the book and highlight what you relate to. And when I read a story in the back of the book, it was through the eyes of how did this person get sober? How did this person stop drinking? What was going on with this person with addiction? But what this sentence says here is it's not the the goal is that he described how he became into how he came into a relationship with God. And that was very important to me because I believe that that is what this program does. This program, a byproduct of this program is sobriety. The program is let's bring you into relationship with God. Yeah, because the alcoholism and the drug addiction is just a symptom. Just a symptom. It's a symptom of our problem. But some of us, when we get here, think that's the problem. That's the problem. I can't stop drinking. I can't do stop doing drugs. That's my problem. That's my problem. And then we're like... Hey, Sugar Bear, uh, that's a symptom of your problem. Yes. The real problem is your lack of power is your dilemma. Yes. You, we're a spiritually based program. You've got to have a God because you've got to be able to put a God between you and the substance, you and the drink, you and the drug, whatever, to place yourself in a position of neutrality. And that's some higher level thinking, especially when you're brand new. Yes. So the best advice I would have for you if you're brand new is come on in, sit down, give yourself the gift of time. And just realize you're not going to get better by next Tuesday and just kind of give into the process and become an obeyer, like you said, <laughs> or in my uh, my vernacular, become a yes, sir kind of guy. And uh, you can be led to a new place. One of the things that I realized, too, um, you know, I when it came to this relationship with a higher power and what does it look like and this, that and the other, they talk a lot about an AA about, you know, staying where your feet are and this one day at a time program. And when it comes to my higher power and a relationship with my higher power, I think and the God of my understanding is timeless. He is not restrained by the idea of time. He's in the past. He's in the future. He's in the present. He's all around. He's in the trees. He's in, the, he's in me. He's everywhere. I am limited by time. And the only moment that I can connect with my higher power is right now, right in this minute right where we are, 
in this second. I cannot connect with a higher power when I'm running around in my past, thinking of the things I should have done, would have done, thinking of my past glory, none of that. I can't connect with my higher power if I'm thinking about my future and my head is future tripping and and doing all the things that we do. I have to be here and centered and say, in this moment, I want to connect. And that's where the magic happens. So when I'm able to just stop and pray and talk, for me, it's just a conversation. And then I stop and say, okay, is there anything that you want to say back? Is there anything that you want to talk to me about? (laughs) It's kind of what your mom taught you how to do. It is. And I actually do that every day. Is there anything that you want to talk to me about? Or... And then what do you do? You just sit there and be quiet? Uh, yeah, it's a form of meditation. And that's what your mom taught you? My mom taught me. And and, and it's, it's expanded since I've gotten into the program and learned different ways to meditate. Um, my meditative state, a lot of times, it's it can be hard to quiet the mind. But if I um, am going to tell, if I like ask a question, if I'm talking to you and I ask you a question, my mind shuts down as I wait for you to answer. Well, now Everything it does. Maybe back in the day, you weren't a good listener. <laughs> Probably not. Maybe what I used to do is I would ask you a question, then you would start talking. I'd be like, what am I going to say next? <laughs> what am I going to say next? I wouldn't even listen. And I'd be like, what am I going to say next? Yeah. No. Now I, I stop and I wait and I listen and it's a way for me to shut my mind down. And, and God. God can talk back all different types of ways. You know, some people hear the still small voice that we've heard about. Some people get pictures in their mind that comes up. Other people have thoughts that just kind of arise. Other people feel led. I'm supposed to get up and take action and go do this. It, it, other people will be sitting in a meeting and all of a sudden somebody says something and it's like, man, that was straight from God. There was a time when my son... Uh, he struggled, he still struggles with ADHD. Okay. So school and him have never gotten along. It's been one of the greatest struggles of my life with my boy. Uh, in the second grade, he came to me and he said, mom, I've realized something and I don't want you to be mad at me. And I said, okay, what's up, babe? He said, I've realized I'm the dumbest kid in my school. Um, that just broke my heart. Like it just broke my heart. I said, why? Why would you think that, honey? That's not true. And he said, well, other kids are, are finishing three assignments and I can't even finish one. And so we started on the journey of the brain spec scan and the diets. And I hate, I don't like medicine. And so I didn't want him to have to get on medicine. But then we tried medicine and he hated the medicine and it didn't work and then this and then that. And people would always tell me, If you find what he is passionate about, ADHD kids go into something called hyper-focus. Whatever they're passionate about, they dive deeper than the average person, and they can go further in it. And so I tried basketball. I tried baseball. I tried BMX. I tried it all. And he's playing baseball. He's chasing the butterflies. He couldn't get... He never really... He didn't care. And so there was a day that I was singing on the praise team at my church, and I was... There was a song that, that we were singing in it, and it what talked about a man who was struggling for a long time in an area, and he was telling God, I would have thought by now that I would have already gotten my answer, and I don't. But I look back at the way that you have always shown up for me and the things that you have brought me through, and I know that in this area, you will do it again. And Christian, it, helped, it hit his self-esteem so badly in school and he felt so less than in school that he would come to me in tears a lot of times. And that day he had come to me crying about the fact that he felt so dumb 
And as I was singing that song, I was, I was thinking about my son and just crying out like, God, I've tried so many things for all these years and nothing is happening. But I look back at how you've gotten me through sobriety and I look back at all the ways that you've shown up for me and I know you're going to do it again. Just please, my boy is hurting. Please show me what I need to do for him. And that day he had his first piano lesson ever. And the guy came over to the house to give him a lesson. I went into the garage to do whatever I was doing. And I came back into the house. And my son is playing with both hands the exact same song that I was singing on the stage that morning. Do it again. The exact same song. Wow. Like, not chopsticks. Not Mary Had a Little Lamb. But, like, both hands the same song. Like, that song. How? How is that possible? And that was God talking back, I've got you. I hear you. I hear you. And I've got you and I've got your son and everything is going to be okay. That was such a moment of like the biggest hug that I could have gotten from God. And after the lesson, Christian looked at me and said, I've never loved anything more in my, when is my next lesson? I can't thank you enough, mom. Thank you so much for this. And he went on a path of playing the piano. And like two years later, he, we were driving in the car and he said, you know, mom, you know how you told me that, um, you know how I used to tell you that I, that I felt kind of like I was stupid and I wasn't smart. And I said, oh yes, why, why are you talking about this? And he said, well, I just want you to know, I don't feel that way anymore. And I said, you don't? He said, no. He said, when I play the piano for the kids at my school, I can tell that they cannot play the way that I can play. And I know that that's the area that I'm smart in. And I know that, that I'm not dumb. And it's like, God used that song to heal my fear and to, to answer my prayer. And he also used music to help heal my son as well and the wound that he had. And so I don't like to put a limit on how God speaks to me. I don't like to, I want to stay open-minded. I call them hidden treasures and God hugs. They are all around if I'm willing to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And when they show up, sometimes they're small and almost insignificant. And other times they're really big, like in that moment. And I feel like my higher power is so intimately involved in my life. And it's beautiful. And I'm so grateful. We should make a movie about your life. (laughs) We should make a movie about it. Because there's so many stories that you tell. I'm like, well, that sounds like a scene in the movie to me. (laughs) The three scenes that I would see in your movie, I would want to see the scene. uh, You know, it's a tough one, but the scene when your parents were fighting as uh, you guys were little and you guys wrote stop on the signs and you guys just all three held up the stop sign. I would want to see that scene in the movie. I would want to see the scene in the movie with you and your dad in the car after your first AA meeting. And then I would want to see that one. So I think they got to make a movie about you. (laughs) Maybe one day. I don't know. They got to do it. (laughs) Okay, so I want to highlight, I want to stay in the literature for a little bit. I want to talk about, you mentioned page 86, 87, and 88. Mm-hmm. And so I want to, we don't really have to comment on it too much because there's so much solid gold within the text and the literature and the words. Maybe I'll just read it. You can comment on if you want to, but there's just so much. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, there's so much definite and clear direction on here. I'll start here on page 86 in the big book. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin... We ask God to direct our thinking, especially that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. 
Under these conditions, we can employ our mental facilities with assurance. For after all, God gave us our brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought, or a decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We are often surprised how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. We may pay for this presumption in all sort of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. We usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be, that we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will and are careful to make no requests for ourselves only. We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that, and it doesn't work. You can easily see why. If circumstances warrant, we ask our wives or friends to join us in morning meditation. If we belong to a religious denomination, which requires a definite morning devotion, we attend to that also. If not members of religious bodies, we sometimes select and memorize a few set prayers which emphasize the principles we have been discussing. There are many helpful books also. Suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they offer. As we go through the day, we pause, when agitated or doubtful, and ask for the right thought or action. We constantly remind ourselves that we are no longer running the show, humbly saying to ourselves many times each day, Thy will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily, for we are not burning up energy foolishly, as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. It works. It really does. We alcoholics are undisciplined. So we let God discipline us in the simple way we have just outlined. But this is not all. There is action and more action. Faith without works is dead. The next chapter is entirely devoted to step 12. When we retire at night, we constructively review our day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. There's actually two things that I kind of want to highlight when it comes to this. The first one is when you talk about, uh, when you read about uh, if we belong to a religious denomination. And it's something that we kind of talked about a little bit earlier when it came to my step two. And, and you came from a place of having no higher power, and I came from a place of having a very defined higher power. I feel like both the religious man 
and the man that's agnostic or atheist, we have to be willing to let down our beliefs and our preconceived notions and, and come in with a blank page and kind of meet in the middle somewhere. It requires a lot for a man who firmly believes that there is no God, that all of a sudden he's got God being jammed down his throat all the time. I can only imagine the struggle that that must be. And then for me saying there's only one God and it's got to be this way and this is the way it looks. And if it's not, then that's not right. And it's blasphemy and you're almost um, slapping God in the face. And there's a lot of turmoil on both sides. And to be able to say, I'm willing to put all of that down and just take a step, one step. It says, God does not require too hard of terms for those who seek him. So just take a step in that direction of what is this all about and allow things to unfold the way that they're going to unfold. For me, with my higher power, a lot of the rules and the judgments and the the things that I was brought up believing in the faith that I belong to went away. When I started having this journey between me and my higher power, I had to ask myself, well, wait a minute, I was taught this from the people standing at the podium. And then I went to the Bible and I decided I'm going to read the Bible for myself and see what does it say. And when I would read the Bible afterwards, I would say, okay, God, who does this say you are? Not how am I supposed to live, whatever, whatever. It was, who does this say you are? And I went, it took it a step further sometimes and I would go to the original text in Hebrew or Greek and, 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 and kind of um, see does the English translation align with the original text. And I got to say, a lot of the things that I heard from the churches that maybe weren't very healthy were not in the Bible that I read. Really? Yeah. What did you think when you saw that? You're like, what am I supposed to do now? That's what I thought. What am I supposed to do now? What I'm supposed to do now is have a relationship with my higher power and let him guide me in what I'm supposed to believe and do and process. And so I can't necessarily say that I belong to a religious denomination. I have my own beliefs, but they are between me and my higher power. And I respect and allow everybody else to have their own beliefs as well. And there are things that I cling to from my original, from my upbringing, the things that I have found that are accurate and true and still hold true for me today as they did then. And there are other things where I realized, wow, I don't believe that that's accurate anymore. And the things that have been revealed to me show that that's not something that I need to uh, hang on to any longer. And I let it go. Who do you talk to about that? Do you just keep that to yourself? No, I, I talk to quite a few people about it. I have uh, spiritual um, spiritual people in my life that I highly respect. And then I also love to talk about spirituality with anybody and everybody to just hear what are your beliefs? What are your thoughts? Like, what, what are, what are you doing? What path is, have you taken? And it allows me to grow more. And it also allows me to have aha moments where it's like, okay, okay. And like you said, it is an ongoing journey. We have these spiritual experiences that happen, like what happened with my son and the piano, but it's a part of a lifelong of a spiritual awakening. And I think that it's never going to end until the day that I leave this place. Yeah. So there was that one that was highlighted to me. And then also when it talked about 
being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. And that reminds me of the times that, you know, as long as we're willing to try and give it a shot and not close our mind off to God's not going to talk to me. I'm not going to hear. I'm not going to. It says right here that we will have these experiences over time we will grow and we're going to be inspired and other times we're going to make a mistake and that's okay it's part of the journey i think it's so important to know that mistakes don't equal failure they don't equal failure it's just part of the journey and learning and growing yeah i agree with that 100 it's so exciting to be sober long term like we are and think about life and, and how we acquiesce our way through it and i think about like Every once in a while, I'm like, yo, dude, Mike, it's okay to have a bad day every once in a while. It's, you know, you're not, nobody told you it's going to be rainbows and puppy dogs all day, every day. (laughs) It's okay to have a bad day every once in a while. But I have some little secret tools that I use to combat those bad days. Yes. One one of them is understanding that they will come. Two, I can go to bed at eight o'clock that night. (laughs) I did not, I was not aware of that. Okay. I did not know that. I thought maybe that I would need to stay up till midnight and, 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 and like really, you know, psychoanalyze myself. Why did you have a bad day? Uh-huh. Maybe because you'd skipped breakfast and then that guy was mean to you at the checkout counter. And then, you know, I think I felt my transmission slip between second and third gear as I was coming off of the highway there. And that that's going to be a problem. That's $4,000, you know? <laughs> and so I, instead I, I just learned early in sobriety somewhere within my first year. I was like, yo, do go to, go to bed at eight o'clock that night. You, if you, if you don't drink or do, use drugs that day, you get a hundred, you get a gold star. Yes. That's the main thing, dude. Just don't drink or use drugs that day. And you get a gold star and bad days will come and it's okay. It's part of the ebb and flow in life. And and I thought like I used to have really high highs and really low lows and I would mood swing on you and I'd go all the way up and then I'd go all the way down. And then now my life is not as not like that as much. Now I kind of just hang out more in the middle, softer highs, softer lows. And I just am able to be present and in, in, in God's presence all the time. And I'm real happy about that. I'm so excited that we read 86 and 87. It gives us clear, definite directions yes. on what to do. If I was out there listening to a podcast and somebody read that, I'd be like, yes. It's, it's, it, it is those clear cut directions. It's okay. This is practical stuff. <laughs> right. It's not like, uh, yo, yo, bro, uh, get up and try to have a good day. Yeah. <laughs> it no. Is, it, 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 answers, it asks questions. Were you selfish? Well, let me think. Was I selfish? Was I dishonest? Oof, I was dishonest right there. Oh, I better. Yeah. Do you need to talk to somebody at once about what's going on? Heck yes, I do. Yeah. You know, it tells you exactly how to, how to do the day, the it whole t- day. It tells you, uh, in early sobriety, I read this. It says, as we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. I never used to do that. I would just be, I would get to the agitated part and I'd feel that. And I get to the doubtful part and I'd feel that. And then I'd come up with some whack solutions to that. But one of my solutions was never to ask for the right thought or action. It was never to pause. It was never to be like, open myself up like your mom taught you to an answer. And what's the answer? Sometimes the answer is do nothing. Yes. Sometimes the answer is take no action. Go to work today, even though you don't feel like it. Yes. Make a healthy decision, even though you don't feel like it. Call somebody if you owe them amends. Go to a meeting. Go to your third meeting today, even though you think that that might be a little much. You know? Mm-hmm. That would be a solution for me when I feel agitated or doubtful is, man, you've been to the 7.30 a.m. meeting. You've been to the noon meeting. It's 4 p.m. now. You're still agitated and doubtful. Man, just go to the 6 o'clock tonight. Or just go to the 8 o'clock tonight. And I might hear something there at the 6 p.m. or the 8 p.m. that will reprioritize um, my whole day. 
and put me in a position of gratitude. Let me tell you a quick story. When I was going to the Aquarius group, which was my home group for a long time, and now it's the Preston group, but I was in a home group member of the Aquarius group for a long time. And I was having all these thoughts and issues and I was having these tough days and I went to the meeting and I'm not going to go into details of what this person shared, but this person who's now passed away, his name was Sandy. He started to share about some real heavy struggles that he was having with his adult daughter. And I started to listen to him share and it brought me out of me. And then I saw the tears start to stream down his face and it brought me more out of me and closer to him and closer to God. And by the time he was finished talking about what he was dealing with in his world and speaking truth into the meeting, I was so far away from my bad day and so far away from my troubles and so far away from what I was talking about. I was solidly in the room with Sandy that day, Mm -hmm. feeling empathy and compassion and kindness. And it reprioritized everything I thought about myself, who I was and what was going on with me. Cause I was in, I was in la la land compared to what Sandy was going through that day. And that just really helps me uh, a lot by going to these meetings. It recalibrates my thoughts and I hear stuff and I receive gifts from people because I don't know what they're going to say. We're just going around the room talking about honesty, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know that the 16th person that shares that day on honesty is going to say something that's going to blow my world up. That you remember all these years later. Yeah, seriously. And so a lot of times it's somebody I don't know or somebody mm-hmm. I've heard shared 55 times and I've never said anything that's blown me up before. One time I was in this meeting in Vail, Colorado. I was on a ski trip and I was in Vail, Colorado and I was by myself. And so I was like, yo, I'm going to an AA meeting tonight, man. And so I find the Vail AA meeting and it's in this church in the middle of downtown, down in the basement. I go down there. I know no one. There's like 17 people in there. I don't know nobody. And so I was like, oh my Mike, alcoholic visiting here from Dallas. Let's see what happens. I thought it was just going to be another meeting, right? I thought we were just going to have a regular AA meeting. This guy starts talking. I don't know who he is. I don't remember what he looks like. I don't remember how long he'd been sober. I don't know nothing about the guy. I don't know his name, nothing. But he said something that went off in my ears like a nuclear bomb, and it would imprint it on my heart and my soul, and I will never forget what he said. And it's exactly what he said. He goes, when I first got here to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was triple dumb. And then when he said that, that's how he started his talk. I was like, what the hell is this guy getting ready to say? He says when he got to Alcoholics Anonymous, he was triple dumb. I was like, oh, what's he going to say? He said, when I got here, I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know how lost I was. And the things that I was most sure about in my life turned out to be dead wrong mm-hmm. in hindsight. And I was like, yo, triple mm-hmm. dumb. He didn't know anything. He wasn't aware he didn't know anything. And the things that he was most sure about in his life and dead set that he was correct on ended up to be 100% wrong. Mm-hmm. And so that gave me hope. And, and, and compassion and, and relatability to him that, well, I guess I was triple dumb when I got here too. I didn't know anything. I wasn't aware I didn't know anything. And the things I was most sure about turned out to be the dead and wrong. So I want to talk about that third leg of that, that piece of wisdom. The things I was most turned, uh, the things I was most sure about turned out to be dead and wrong. The first one was there's no God. Mm-hmm. I was wrong about that. The other thing I was wrong about is that most people are bad and they will get you and they will hurt you if they can. The fourth thing, or the third thing I was most wrong about is that um, I didn't want to be uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous and I didn't want to be sober. Well, that turned out to be the best thing that ever happened mm-hmm. to me. The fourth thing I was dead wrong about that I figured out I was wrong about after a while is I didn't want to be married because I didn't want to, 
I just didn't want to lose the freedom. I didn't want to lose my options. I didn't want to lock it down. I didn't want to be married. Okay. I turned out I was wrong. I was wrong about that. I love being married. I love having a wife. I love Aww. having a kid. I love, I love my life, you know, but I didn't want it. Love that. And then the other one was having a kid. Mm. I didn't want to have a kid. I didn't want to have a kid. Why? Probably for the same reason I didn't want to get married. I, they're expensive. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not going to go into the details. But my kid is expensive <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I'm cheap. So if you got a cheap person looking at an expensive investment, I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. And I thought it would lock me down on like things that I could do. And, you know, it's like, well, I don't know if I can, why would I want a kid, you know? Well, guess what? It turns out I was dead wrong about that. So like all these things that I thought that I knew and I was most sure about, I was dead wrong about that, dead wrong about that, dead wrong about that, dead wrong about that. You know what I was dead wrong about? <clears throat> service. Yeah. I was dead wrong about the gift of being of service. When I remember early in sobriety, I was sitting, meeting with my sponsor, and I was telling her, I know that I have a calling on my life. Oh, I know. I know I'm supposed to do big things with my life, you know, and I had these just ridiculous fantasy type grand ideas. <laughs> And she said, oh, I know you do have a call. Don't worry about it. I know exactly what your calling is. And I was like, well, what? And she said, your calling is to be sitting in this room with other women and taking them through the steps, just like I'm taking you through the steps. And I thought, wow, that just sounds really boring. (laughs) That does not sound at all the kind of grand things that I had planned or ideas that I had. But I'll tell you what. When I was, I was a voice teacher for a while. And when I was a voice teacher, I I also thought, why would you ever become the best that you can be at something just to turn around and show somebody else how to do it? That doesn't really sound like a gift there. And I figured that people who weren't that great would have to be the teachers because they weren't good enough to make it big. Mm -hmm. Well, in reality, when I taught a voice student how to grow, there was such a beautiful gift there. It's like with your voice, it's not like a note that you can play. It's very in your head. You have to picture things and and tell them stories to try to get them to do on their inside of their bodies what they need to do so that then they can hit the notes that they're supposed to hit. And so when I saw them be able to grow by something that I said, there was like a little, it was like, a little, oh, that's, that's awesome. I helped. It is so much more in sobriety. I, um... I have seen a girl who had no God of her understanding. And I remember thinking, how? She asked me to be her sponsor. And I'm like, how am I going to help this girl? I've always had a higher power. What am I going to do here? Well, I went through the steps. So you go through the big book. And by the time we were at our third step, and we were doing the third step prayer together on our knees, holding hands, and she was saying it, and she really believed. And she was talking about a moment that she had sitting on her back porch when, when she had this spiritual moment with her higher power. And I was crying. I was the one weeping. It really works. I can't believe, you know, my faith grew and it was so beautiful. And there was another time where I was at church and there was a girl at the end of my aisle and she was there all by herself at at eight o'clock in the morning and she was weeping the whole time. And I remember thinking, I really hope somebody goes up and talks to her after this this church (laughs) service because she clearly needs some help. And as the service ended, she didn't go up for prayer. Nobody went up to her. And it was like, I, God highlighted, you are noticing her when nobody else is noticing her. You need to go and say something. And I'm like, 
I don't like approaching people. I'm introvert, but I thought I'm just going to do what I was taught to do. So my little awkward self wandered over and said, Hey, listen, I've noticed that you were crying. Is there anything that you want to talk about? And she's like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And wiped her eyes real quick. And I said, okay, well, I'm just going to give you a quick hug if that's okay. So we awkwardly hugged and I smelled alcohol on her breath. And I thought, what do I do now? And I remember I do exactly what working with others teaches me to do. And so I remembered that chapter and I sat down and I said, is it okay if I talk with you briefly about what used to bring me to church in tears? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, well, I am an alcoholic and I struggled with drinking for many, many years and I couldn't figure out how to get sober. And that's all I had to say. And she broke down and openly started weeping and told me her story. And I offered to take her to a meeting. I gave her my number and she didn't go to the meeting. And for the next six months, I would randomly hear a text message from her here and there. Hey, I'm kind of thinking. And I just kind of kept in touch with her and, you know, just prayed, you know, whatever God's path is for this girl, just allow it to be done. And finally, after six months, she went to a meeting and she got herself a sponsor and she was in the rooms for a while and then she disappeared. And I thought, man, I hope she's doing okay. I wonder whatever happened to that girl. Years later, I got a text message on my phone and it was from this girl. And she said, I just wanted you to know I moved and I'm living in this new state, but I've been sober ever since. And I'm so grateful that you were willing to approach me at church that day, because if you wouldn't have gone up and talked to me, I would have walked out without ever hearing the, the solution. And what happened inside of my heart that day, I, I, it wasn't about me. It wasn't, look at what I've done. I'm so awesome. It is, I am doing what I was called to do. I am living the life that I am supposed to live. I have purpose. And when I am able to be of service to other people, this joy and this love bursts outside, just bursts inside of me. It's like inside out. And it's so amazing. And I would have sold myself short if I would have said, um, I'm going to be willing to do everything else but sponsor. Oh, I'm going to be willing to do everything else, but I don't ever want to tell my story. Oh, I'm going to be willing to do it, but I don't want to be on that panel. I don't want to even the, the coffee, get, take care of the coffee, the small things, everything. It feeds our soul when we are of service to other people. And it is a beautiful, important part of the program. And it is a huge gift of the program. That's another scene for the movie. That's number four. I think, I think we stacked. I think we stacked a church scene on number four. That is a good one. That is a good one. Let's focus on your experience with the eleven step sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. What styles and forms of meditation and prayer are you using today? So I use a lot. One of the things that I think is important to point out when it comes to step 11 is to improve and improve is an ongoing thing. So what worked for me 10 years ago might not necessarily work anymore. I love that. And so I'm always open to seeing what else there is, what's new. There are some things that I do every day and I, and it works for me and I'm going to stay, but I don't want to get stagnant. I was taught early on that it, there is no staying still in the program. You're either moving forward or you're going backward. And I always want to be moving forward. Another thing that I think is important to, to highlight 
is praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. A lot of times there are some things that I have heard in the rooms where they say, oh, well, I'm not allowed to pray about certain things and I don't talk about this and I don't, you know, I stay away from things about myself. And for me, in order to be in a real relationship with somebody, uh, like with my mother or with a friend, there are things that I just share, you know, things about what's going on in my life. There are times when I am really happy with the relationship that I have with a friend or with a parent or with a child. And then there are other times when I'm angry. There's times when I'm confused. There's times when I am distant. There's times when I am extra close. And in a relationship with my higher power, I have seen those things come to pass over the years as well. There have been times when I have been so confused and baffled and not understanding, and I talk to him about it. So when it says praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out, I think that that is a very broad statement. It doesn't have to be, well, I can only say, God, help me know what you want me to do. That's the only prayer we're supposed to say? I don't think so. It's the knowledge of his will for us is huge. What is this knowledge? What is this will? I have questions. I'm not sure. I'm kind of angry about what happened here. And I want to, I want to know what I'm supposed to do here. And I really, really, really want to do this for my career, but I can't seem to get it. That's talking about ourselves too at the same time. But it's, I think that there is a difference of the Santa Claus prayers. God, give me this, 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 and this. This is what I want. This is going to make me happy versus I'm just going to have a conversation. And in relationships, sometimes I feel like I can be very angry. And, 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 and there are times with my relationship with God where I have been angry. And I have told him I'm angry. And I know that overall, my higher power has my best interest at heart, but that doesn't mean that I'm not angry. When I look at my child when he was three years old and he wanted to eat all 12 cookies that I baked, but I would only give him two, and he would get angry with me. And I would say, I promise this is in your best interest. You're going to get a tummy ache if I let you eat all 12, just you have to trust me. And he loved me still, and he got over it, but he was mad at me for only the two cookies, but it's still in his best interest. And so when it comes to my relationship with my higher power, I think it's very important when it comes to step 11 that we allow each person to have this relationship unfold. And different tools that I have used, um, there, I, when it comes to meditation, especially, I've grown a lot. At first, it was just this moment where I would ask during my quiet time, God, you know, who are you? And I would listen. And then I'd say, is there anything you want to talk to me about? And I would listen. And then I started into actual forms of meditation. And I YouTubed meditation for beginners. And I just kind of did a guided meditation. And at first it was very hard for me to quiet myself down. I could maybe do two or three minutes and then I was off to the races, especially early on in sobriety. But the more I practiced when it came to meditation, the longer I was able to go. And it went from, I can't believe I have to do this another 10 freaking minutes. Gosh, oh, you know, tick tock, tick tock. Come on. I want this to be done. 
to actually enjoying the whole process. And there have been times when I've been in long, like hour, hour and a half forms of meditation where it's just so beautiful. And I, I hear some of wow. my, yeah, that's a long <laughs> one, right? <laughs> I just did a breathwork session. God. That's a form of meditation. That's an hour and a half. And it was incredible. What, oh. do you, what do you think about those t-shirts that say spiritual gangster? Maybe we should get you a, maybe we should get you a t-shirt that says spiritual gangster. I have a lot of friends who are super into the spiritual gangster and the <laughs> savage and sober and blah, blah. You know, I, I, I can respect that totally. I, I just kind of feel like I am. Um, I just dig my higher power, man. That's it. I, I love my relationship. And so I'm a little bit more simple than that. What about yoga? Have you, have you dipped into yoga yet? I have. Yeah, I've, I've tried yoga. And unfortunately, with my back having steel rods <laughs> yeah. in them. <laughs> They're like, try this pose. You're like, nah. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to be able to quite do that. Yeah. But I, I'm still able to modify and I get a lot of it. There's another um, practice called Kinergy. K-I-N-R-G-Y. Mm-hmm. And that you can look up on YouTube and that is a whole, it, it, it kind of combines some yoga and dance and meditation and breath work. And it, it, it's a whole experience that's really had some benefits for me. Insight Timer is an app that you can get and it has all different types of meditations on it. And one thing that I've noticed, if I'm struggling with fear, I'll Google me- or YouTube meditation on fear. If I'm if I'm struggling with anger, meditation on forgiveness or meditation, whatever, I can highlight it and be like, where where does it talk about this morning meditation, evening meditation, connecting with God meditations? They're all out there. Whatever is on my heart that morning. I will move forward in that direction. And because I stopped being so close-minded as to what I was what I thought I was supposed to do and not do, a whole world of possibility has opened up for me. And there are things that my spirit does not connect with and says, let's shy away from that. And I shy away from that. I'm like, that's one, that's not where I'm at right now. And there's other things where I might be like, man, I really wasn't really into that three years ago, but gosh, for some reason I'm feeling kind of like I'm supposed to go down that path. All right, well, let's go down that path. It's a journey, a lifetime of a journey. Let's go see what's going on. What is the most profound message you have received during meditation? I will never leave you or forsake you. When I was uh, writing out the God of my understanding on step two, that was one of my uh, homework assignments, write out a list of who the God of your understanding is. And I wrote out loving and protecting and caring and almighty alpha omega all these things i listed all these beautiful things but when i was beginning step 11 early in sobriety there were these moments where i would feel his closeness so suddenly and so significantly i felt this tie between us and i knew he was there in that moment and the first thing that i would cry out in tears immediately in tears is god please don't leave me Please don't leave. And the truth was that the God of my understanding would leave because that's what I knew. My parents, although they were not phys- they were still physically there, they emotionally left me. And a lot of people in my life abandoned me and left. And my greatest fear was to be abandoned. And so and when I was beginning step 11 and I would feel that closeness and I would cry out, God, please don't leave me please don't leave. 
I would always hear, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And, and little by little, as time went on, I would feel that presence and feel that closeness. And my knee-jerk reaction was no longer, God, please don't leave me. There was a deep knowing that I am always connected to my higher power. And there is a deep truth that God will never leave me. He is always going to be there for me. And even though sometimes I may turn away, sometimes I put blocks in between the two of us, and sometimes I rebel, he is always there. The moment I turn back, there he is right there waiting, and it's beautiful. That is beautiful. I love that. Can you talk to me a little bit about why going to meetings is important? Story after story after story that I have heard in the rooms from people that relapse, the first thing that they say is, I stopped going to meetings. I don't want that to be my story. And I have also noticed that when people who are consistently going to meetings are, are, are diligent about that, that they enjoy going to meetings. When uh, other people have pulled away and stopped going to meetings, all of a sudden they don't like meetings anymore. I've always enjoyed meetings. And people have asked me, how can you like going to the meetings? It's the same thing over and over again. Here's the deal. First of all, I'm a meeting hopper. And I love going to different groups and seeing the different personalities and hearing the different things that are shared. But also... Although we only have 12 steps and we talk about, we highlight the same things over and over again, my life changes. And as I'm going through my, uh, the, you know, the next year, what was significant in step three, 10 years ago is not going to be significant now. It could be something completely different. And if I keep it relevant and I don't keep my sobriety and my stories about my past and what I did back then when I first got sober or five years ago, but what am I doing right now today in my program with the coworker that I don't really get along with or with the, the new responsibility that I've been given that I'm super excited about or this podcast that I was asked to do and it's new and and exciting and a little bit nerve-wracking, but also just amazing. Like, how can I apply the program, the steps, these principles into each of my area of my life today? That keeps it relevant. That keeps it new. That keeps it interesting. That keeps it solution-based. And therefore, I want to stay in the meetings. I am a firm believer that if I were to stop going to meetings, it would be the first step in the direction of me drinking again. And I don't ever want to drink again. I believe what people tell me. Yeah, me too. It's amazing. We both come a long way because, you know, you talked about you had some anxiety issues and you think that type of person might not like to go to a bunch of different meetings with a bunch of different people right. in a bunch of different parts of town. And then I, uh, I just didn't like people for a while. I just got a little sour on people. Uh, and uh, I was just like, oh yeah, I like people. So like, why would I want to go to a bunch of AA meetings, you know? But for me, yeah, same answer as you gave. Meeting attendance is important. So I go to meetings so I can hear what happens to people that don't go to meetings. And I enjoy them. Um, 
I just like the people. I like yes. the energy. I like the vibe. Do I like everything about going to meetings? No, because sometimes parking's hard. Mm-hmm. And if the meetings, just to be honest with you, if the meeting's an hour and it takes me 25 minutes to get there and 25 minutes to drive home, and if we screw around and go to lunch and put another 45 minutes to an hour in there, that's like legitimately asking me or myself or whatever for like a two and a half to three hour chunk of my day. Right. When I could be doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. I could be working out. I could be sleeping. I could be uh, hanging out with my kid i could be doing a lot of other things but i just continue to stay in a position where i am in love with alcoholics anonymous i'm in love with the people and meetings and i like going to the meetings and i'm like you i like to go to a lot of different groups now i know a lot of cats that do not yes they go i do to, too they go to aquarius <laughs> or they go to clean air north and those cats i'm not gonna name these but they don't do no service work. They only go to the gift. You know, mm-hmm. that's just, and, and it is what it is. But here's the deal. I don't care. Yeah. I stay in my lane. Live and let live. Yeah, do you, bro? <laughs> you do you. I know I'm always going to see you when I come to the gift. And you're actually always going to sit in the same chair. Oh, yes. And get up the same number of times. I know you get up at 35 after to get you a PP break and to get you a <laughs> glass of water. Um, and I just, I just know people's vibe and I know what they do. Well, and what's really interesting too, is there are sometimes when you're in a meeting, well, I mean, I'll speak on my, for myself and, and I, my, at my home group or somewhere that I go on a regular basis and there's somebody that I don't drive with. And when they share, I know what they're going to share, or I feel like I know what they're going to share. And it's the same thing over and over again. Uh, there's a couple of, of things that I was taught to do. The first thing is the principle of, <clears throat> uh, principles before personalities. Mm-hmm. And love and tolerance is our code, but not love and tolerance is uh, like, ugh, I'm barely tolerating this person as he share, overshares again. You know, here we go. We know what he's going to say. We know about the first three days you were sober, bro. You know, and judging and like hardly tolerating somebody, you know, like that's so rude. When love and tolerance is our code, it's like, no, we love and we accept where that person is. And how I've been able to do it is this trick this tool that I was taught. If I imagine my higher power standing right next to me, which he always is, but if I just acknowledge it and say, okay, God, if you're looking at this person right now, what do you have to say about this person? How do you see this person? (laughs) It's my kid. (laughs) (laughs) Every time it has changed my perspective. I've never heard that before. I have looked at a person (laughs) who I have heard overshare the same story time and time again. And what I saw, it went from, oh, here we go again to, this guy is trying his best. This guy is sober. This guy is sitting in a room. And if he wasn't, if none of us were here, if none of us were willing, where would we all be? And there's compassion that is birthed inside of me when I can change my perspective. And the next thing you know, it's not, I'm barely tolerating you. It is, oh, I love you. God bless you. All right. It's fine. And then it's, I go along the meeting and it's different. So that's how I have been able to overcome some of the not so great moments in, in meetings. You know, it's, they're not always magical. You know what I mean? Right. I've had this situation <laughs> and I'm like, oh, here goes XYZ again. He's going to say XYZ. Yeah. And then at some point I was like, dude, calm down, man. Why don't you calm down? Maybe he, like, he probably needs to share. So just sit your little self down. Calm down, and take a breath. Hey, Mike, why don't you calm down for three minutes? Right. And let, let this bro talk because he might be lonely. And who knows who's thinking that about when you're sharing? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> I know who he is. 
They all think I talk here too much. Here she goes again. They're all like, right. Like, here goes Quigs, man. He's going <laughs> to rah, 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 rah. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, so um, can you give me an example of one of the promises coming true in your life? And I know you and I have talked about that there's many types of promises contained in our literature, some of them positive and some of them negative. So what do you got on the promises? Okay, I got a couple of promises. One of the promises that came true in my life is something that I read in the back of the book that I think is so profound and so important. It's a story that some guy was sharing, and he talked about how um, working the steps and going through the program, he found God. And in finding God, he found himself. Wow. And that was so important to me because I had no idea who I really was when I came in. I was an empty shell. The inside was nothing but shame. And I was trying so hard to mask my, um, my brokenness and the truth that I believed that I was not enough. And so everything on my outside was impeccable to the best of my ability, my looks, my, my personality, when I would be talking to you, it wouldn't be about what do I want to share with this person about myself? It would be more like, what does this person need me to say so that then he'll like me or she'll like me? I remember dating somebody one time and I, I, I really liked him so much and he, I didn't really like his sense of humor. He tried to say something that I didn't like multiple times. What he thought was funny, I didn't think was funny. And I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to change my sense of humor. Because what? I want him what? to. Like, I know, I was you can't so, do that. I know, and I, so I would laugh and say, "Okay, you're just gonna you're gonna think that's funny from now on." And that's really not. How long were you sober when you did that? Or were you very early in sobriety? Okay, thank God. I hope that very, wasn't last week. No, very early in sobriety. <clears throat> because I wasn't okay with just being true to who I was. I didn't even know who I was, and so coming into this program and working the steps, and then starting to live by these principles starting to allow God into my life, starting to take direction from my sponsor, I started to learn, this is who I am. And I started to look in the mirror and no longer highly dislike this person, but I started to respect this person. And then I started to say, oh, my sense of humor is actually very enjoyable and funny. Okay. And I went from always having to be doing stuff and busy and hanging out with other people because I couldn't stand being with just myself to really enjoying my own time and, and enjoying me. And then it went from respecting to kind of liking, and then it went to loving. And I had to learn how to have boundaries. I, boundaries were a new concept for me. In my family, there were none. We were all enmeshed. Everybody was in everybody's business and this son and the other. And the way that I allowed people to treat me in order for them to like me was very inappropriate. And I remember early on in sobriety, a guy sent me a text message that was so inappropriate. It was not okay for a man to talk to a woman, me, like that. And I... Was so. Was used. it a friend or a dating guy? Yeah, it was a friend at the time. He wanted to be more than friends. Uh oh. Yes, and what he said was way too inappropriate to even repeat. Okay, okay. that kind of I could be nonsense, <laughs> okay. right? And I remember I was so used to playing it off, bypassing inappropriate, unacceptable behavior, all of that. I was I was able to handle it in a way that didn't just put a boundary in place like that's not okay. And I told my sponsor about it and she said, you need to respond and you need to say, it is not okay to talk to me like that. Please do not talk to me like that again. Put a boundary there. And you did? And I did it. And I was terrified. And what was his oh, response? Was did she help you wordsmith it? Did she help you? I, I did. I, I, if she said, 
just say it very, please do not talk to me like that again. It's not okay. And what, and you'd send it and what did he say? Okay. I'm so sorry. You're right. <laughs> yeah. It was that inappropriate. And, and so I learned I can have a voice. Yeah. My whole life, I walked around with like a, like a tape over my mouth that it wasn't okay for me to speak my truth. Yeah, you can. And it's okay to speak my Encouraged. truth. And, it, and it's, it doesn't have to be cruel. No. It doesn't have to. You can be firm and kind at the same time. Yeah. No, thank you is a full sentence. <laughs> I didn't know that. It was no, because uh, excuse yeah, after excuse yeah, after yeah. excuse. Uh, that's not my jam. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so it's been beautiful to be able to find myself and love myself. So that's the positive promise that, that I wanted to highlight today. And the one that, that the, the big book has lots of kind of scary promises, I think, too. Yeah. One that has always stuck out to me is on page 70 mm -hmm. when it's talking about um, the sex inventory mm -hmm. on step four. And it says, suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we are going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half truth. It depends on us and on our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and will have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. These are facts out of our experience. That is a huge promise. Yeah. So when it comes to how I treat other people, if I continue to have ulterior motives, if I am not honest, if I am shady, if I do things that I know would harm another person if they knew about it, I'm going to drink again. That's really important for me to know. When I was in relationships before I got sober, I was such a liar such a liar because i needed everybody else's approval of me I, like what like where you were never, what you were doing or i was a uh, I, I never was a cheater but i would lie about my friendships like if i knew that a guy liked me more than a friend i would just say that we were just friends even though i wasn't going to do anything with him i still wanted his approval and so i was willing to be friends with him even though it was kind of inappropriate but kind of not inappropriate very gray area <laughs> and then if he was reaching out to me and my boyfriend got mad about it then i would just say okay well i won't talk to him anymore but i would still talk to him yeah and so there are ways to be dishonest and, and also like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go hang out with my girlfriends and we're just going to go and be at her house or whatever. Well, no, we went to the bar and drank and got wasted. Mm -hmm. And so I would lie about that. Many different ways where I was being dishonest. And if he knew, my behaviors were not appropriate. Because the reason why I was at the bar was not to have a good time. The reason why I was at the bar was because I wanted to be desired. And the reason why I had these inappropriate friendships was because I needed to be desired. And that's a harmful to my relationship. If I am purposely doing things to cause jealousy or to um, even all forms of different cheating, because it's not just about physical cheating, there's also emotional cheating as well. If I'm doing any of that stuff and I know it and I'm aware of it, it says right here, if you're not sorry and you keep that nonsense up, you're, you're headed for a disaster. You will drink again. And that's part of the thing where I had to, when I got sober, I had to say, okay, all of that manipulating, all of that hiding, all of that control, all of that everything has to go down, has to be let go. I have to say, this is me and I'm going to try my best 
to be a good girlfriend. <laughs> I'm going to try really hard to be what you deserve. And again, it did not, it, 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 it helped me have healthy relationships, but it also helped me become who I was called to be. And it helped me start liking who I was because I was no longer doing all this shady shit. I think it's really important. And this is not a blanket statement. This is not a hard, true, fast law. But that's why everything you just said in the last six minutes is why I think it's important for females to sponsor females and males yes. <laughs> have males sponsor males. Not that it's never okay for a dude to sponsor a lady or not vice versa. I'm not, I'm not staying in your lane and do what you do. I don't care. But I'm just saying, everything you said the last six minutes, all that information needed to be downloaded in you by, I would, I would assume, another female. Yes. And then you have to turn around and talk to all the girls that you sponsor and tell the same thing to them. And I don't think that a dude would be able to do that effectively because we have never lived that life or thought that way or been in that position. Yes. I mean, we've been in dating positions, but not from your side. Right. And what's really interesting about the the sex inventory Oh yeah, that's another reason. The whole sex inventory, the whole thing. Yeah, that that it's so it with with a man and a man, also, you can be more open. With a woman and a woman, you can be more open. I cannot talk about my relationships intimately yeah. with a man. That's not appropriate. <laughs> and I'm not sure how a dude sponsoring a lady can teach her or show her how to be a classy, respectful, sober woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because guess what? He's, He's not, not a classy sober, beautiful woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. Only a man can teach a man how to be a man. Only a woman can teach a woman how to be a woman. That's yeah. my that's yeah. my my belief. And 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 when it comes to like the fifth step, I remember I had a a sponsee come and she was telling me about her relationships and the way that I work that part of the inventory out is they tell a little bit about each relationship that they've been in, how how they got into the relationship, um, what they liked about the relationship, what was good, what happened that was not so good, and why they broke up. And what ends up happening is on page 69, it asks the question, did you cause jealousy? Were you, you know, all the questions that it asks. And what comes up when they're telling their story of relationship after relationship after relationship is patterns. Yeah. And so I was listening to one girl share and, and again and again and again, she kept going back. Like every time that she was in a relationship and they broke up for very obvious reasons they needed to, she was the girl that always went back to the guy again. And so it would take a long time for her to fully get away from whatever partner she was in. And then the next partner, the same thing would happen again, break up back together, break up back together. And I noticed the pattern, but I don't know why that pattern is there. And so I asked, I noticed that there's this pattern. You constantly go back to the guy. Then when clearly he's not the right one for you, clearly he's very harmful to you. Why Do you know why it is that you go back again and again? And she thought about it and she said, yes, I know. Because at the time, I don't think that I could get any better. And there's the lie. That's the lie that you've been telling yourself. And that's the wound that needs to be healed. And when it comes to the things that are causing us to pick up the drink, we have all these holes, all these wounds inside of us. And I think of them as like when somebody says, trying to fit a, a round peg in a square hole, I think of these wounds as God-shaped holes. And nothing is going to fill that hole except our higher power. And I can go and try to have a relationship fill it. I can go and try to have a substance fill it. I can go and try to have whatever shopping fill it, whatever it is that I try to fill this hole in. But the only thing that's really going to work is my higher power because it's a God-shaped hole. And so when I, when I saw that truth and she was able to voice it and realize it, 
she no longer had to have the same pattern happen again. She could do something different. And the next time she was in a relationship and she realized that it wasn't a healthy relationship, she knew that that belief system that she had before was no longer accurate and she could make another choice. And it was beautiful. It's healing. That is beautiful. That's a valuable tool. I've seen a lot of girls do that. They'd be stuck in that. I'm going back to him, even though I know he's no good for me routine. Mm -hmm. I want the listeners to know that I'm open-minded. I'm not mad at anybody. I understand there's such a things as um, people being gay and I support that. I, I, I understand the gender, gender identity and all that stuff. So uh, when I talk about guys sponsoring guys and girls sponsoring girls, I understand there's special situations and I understand that. I have no problem with that. I'm just talking about a general overarching micro view theme, view of things. I just feel like in most cases... It's probably better for dudes to sponsor dudes and girls to sponsor girls, well, and, even and, though there's exceptions to that rule. And I do, I go actually to Lambda a lot. The Lambda group is, is one of the meetings that, that I hit regularly. And uh, when it comes to that situation, uh, sometimes it is better uh, and more appropriate for a man to be sponsored by a woman because of, of I've the seen differences. That a bunch. I've yeah, seen that yeah, a bunch. that that's something where and absolutely it is. Because the dude identifies as a female or has a lot more feminine energy. Absolutely, and so he goes with a girl sponsor, and I, I, I think that's awesome. I do too. I'm I completely, think- I'm completely accepting <clears throat> of that, and and I want everybody to be able to get the solution, whatever that looks like. There's zero judgment and zero condemnation and zero. I think I know better. We we don't know. We, <laughs> I'm just I, doing the best I can right, over here. Exactly. <laughs> just I can't to stay above water. <laughs> I, I can't walk in the shoes of somebody that is transgender. I have no idea what that's like at all. All I know is I love you and I accept you and whatever you need to do to get sober i want to help yeah me too me too love and light love and light get closer to your higher power however you got to do it so please don't let us offend you or make you mad or think you that we're closed-minded because we're not so what are some songs books apps bible verses podcasts or other non-program related tools that you use to help you in your sober journey Uh, things that are a little bit outside uh there's a course in miracles that I find fascinating. There's a workshop by Marianne Williamson that you can find on Audible that's called the Enchanted Love Workshop. It is so amazing. There's so much good meat in that workshop. I I listened to it through the years multiple times. What do they talk about? I have no idea. They talk about um, how to be in relationships with people, not just significant others, but with anybody. And it's very spiritual-based. It is what taught me that tool that I gave you about when you're looking at somebody and God is standing there and you say, God, how do you view this person? I learned it from that workshop. So there's tools like that all through it. Oh gosh, I could go on and I could speak a whole hour on that workshop. I listen to it frequently. Brene Brown stuff is really good. Um, her, the power of vulnerability is something on Audible as well that, that I grew a lot from. And, um, then, when it comes to songs, I just connect a lot with songs and lyrics of songs. And although a lot of times songs that are spiritual based have like a religious affiliation to it, they have been able to help me so much when it comes to connecting with my higher power. A lot of times before I go to my prayer and meditation, I will listen to some songs that I feel connected with. And sometimes it's just instrumental, piano or violin. But other times there's very important songs. And through my life, God has spoken to me through songs. I remember before I got sober, there was a song that was very popular on the radio. 
And there were the lyrics, um, I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. I don't want to spend my whole life asking, what if I had given everything instead of going through the motions? What if I had given everything instead of going through the motions? And I would be so hungover when I would hear that song, and I would be barely getting to my job and having to just go through the effing motions. And I would wonder, what would it be like if I really gave my all? What would it feel like to have God's passion inside of me? I don't even know. And I would weep. And a year after I got sober, maybe a year and a half, I was driving in the car, and that song wasn't popular anymore. So it was no longer on the radio. I had totally forgotten about it. And I turned on the radio, and all of a sudden, there it was. I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to spend one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. I don't want to spend my whole life asking, what if I had given everything instead of going through the motions? And it was highlighted how far I had come. And I wept, but not from pain. I wept from joy because his all-consuming passion was inside of me. Because I had given everything, and I had continued to give everything. And I could do now, I continue to give everything instead of just going through the motions. And I saw healing that had happened, and it touched my life so significantly. So songs are huge for me, and I think anybody, whatever genre you're into, can tap into that. And just have another way where God speaks to us. Yeah, music reaches us deep down in our soul. One of my favorite songs that I've discovered in sobriety, and I knew it before, but it didn't mean anything to me before I got sober. And now it means everything to me is the song and the lyrics from uh, the song Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Dude, that is a good one. <laughs> Amazing Grace is a good one. So I'm into that. Me too. I love that song so much. I am into it. And like, as far as apps go, um, you go to the app store, whatever, Google Play, long story short, there's so many good guided meditation apps that you can find in there. Tons of them are free. Some of them you have to pay a membership for. But for the guys that I sponsor that struggle and they're like, I can't stop my mind. I can't quiet my mind. I'm like... We're probably going to have to start out with guided meditation for you. And so I want you to download this app and I want you to try it. And um, one minute, 60 seconds is good. You know, maybe yes. the next day you can do two minutes. Uh, as far as uh, the meditation thing, we talked about meditation earlier. And I sometimes like to talk about things that I have not achieved yet, but I want to achieve. And I guess I would use the word aspirational. And long story short, I aspire to have the ability to get to this place I'm getting ready. I say I want to get to, but I haven't gotten there yet. And what that is, is I want to be able to accomplish and achieve two 20-minute sits per day. I want to be able to concentrate and meditate 20 minutes a day, two times a day. Am I there yet? No. But I want to be there. (laughs) The goal is there. It's on my radar screen (laughs) for 2023. So just to let you know and everybody that's out there listening, my goal, really kind of my only goal so far for 2023, is to be able to sit for 20 minutes a day times two because why why do i want to do that because the people that i know love trust and respect all say it's the way right the way to more god and less me which is what i'm into right now i'm into more god and less me so i'm going to attempt to do that love it i don't know what's going to happen but i'm gonna try 
So we're coming down to the end, and I want to ask you if you have any parting thoughts. My greatest heart's desire is that we each get this deal. I remember so vividly the amount of pain and suffering that I was in as an active and untreated alcoholic and addict. I remember being enslaved and not having the choice. I had to drink. I remember the consequences and the pain that I felt 24-7. I remember feeling like I was drowning and barely getting by. My heart does not want that for anybody. I care so deeply if there is another person listening right now that is going through that same pain and remorse and shame and hell that is being enslaved to the, to the disease. My greatest desire is that you be able to be free of that disease. The reason why I agreed to come on here is because I don't want somebody else to die of the disease of alcoholism. I don't want somebody else to lose their child from the disease. I don't want another person to be locked up in prison because of the disease. I want us all to be free. I want us all to get the gift. There is a huge, huge blessing that comes that is far, that's far outweighs just not wanting to drink anymore. Not wanting to drink anymore is amazing and it's so big. It's so awesome. But the life that Alcoholics Anonymous offers us is so much more than that. And my greatest heart's desire is that anybody who is struggling that hears this might say, maybe I can get it too. Maybe I can go to a meeting and, and, and get a chip. Maybe I can find a sponsor. Maybe I can get what this girl has to and be free of this. And if there's anything that I can do to help that happen, I am here. If you're out there listening and you're brand new sober or thinking about getting sober, come on in, try it, give us a chance to love you right where you're at, meet you right where you're at, and try to get you sober through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, we, we realize that Alcoholics Anonymous is not the only way to get sober. There are other ways to do it. We don't have a monopoly on recovery. But in my personal experience, it's a perfect fit for me. It's what I needed at the time that I was beaten all the way down by active alcoholism and drug addiction. And I was blessed to be introduced to and then reintroduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, which has saved my life. Do you have any contact information that you would like to share with our audience so they can get in touch with you or ask you questions? Sure. Yes. If anybody would like to send me an email, my email address is marinasmelodies at gmail. It's my first name, Marina, M-A-R-I-N-A-S-M-E-L-O-D-I-E-S at gmail. Marinasmelodies at gmail. Thank you for joining us with Sober Shares, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us today. I want to read something from page 559, and it's the last personal story in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, 4th edition, page 559, last paragraph. Above all, we reject fantasizing and accept reality. The more I drank, the more I fantasized everything. I imagined getting even for hurts and rejection. In my mind's eye, I played and replayed scenes in which I was plucked magically from the bar where I stood nursing a drink and was instantly exalted to some position of power and prestige. I lived in a dream world. AA led me gently from this fantasizing to embrace reality with open arms, and I found it beautiful, for at last I was at peace with myself and with others and with God. 
Thank you for joining us on Sober Shares. Thank you, Marina. We'll see y'all on the next episode. Thank you.